people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives for me, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles, a lot of theories, and I try not to read them, and whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, I Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to the fifth and final episode of Pizza and Fairy Tales, our series on Lennon-McCartney in the 1970s. The Beatles story has always been one of sincere, abiding love. It's told this way, it's referenced this way. If you look at any product or project endorsed by the Beatles, you'll find that love is their unified message. Even a short summary of the band on say a music app or a news article will often reference their love for each other. Love was both the catalyst for and the engine that drove the Beatles. It is their chosen and actual legacy to the world. And yet they also famously had a horrible, bitter breakup. So in the previous episode, we went through some potential scenarios in an attempt to understand why John and Paul became so insane and hostile to each other. We obviously do not know the private details of their relationship, but we applied the information we do have to a handful of plausible scenarios. There may or may not have been some failed attempt on John's part to start an affair with Paul, and that's as much as we know. Anything beyond that is speculation. The bottom line, however, is that John realized or decided or accepted that the relationship with Paul had limitations, and he quite reasonably decided to move on to a new romantic slash creative partner. This deeply wounded Paul, who wasn't prepared to give up on their friendship or musical partnership. Hurt feelings and miscommunications escalated until finally everything went off the rails. In our fifth and final episode, we're going to focus on Paul's mindset in the 1970s during the pizza and fairy tales era. What is he conveying to John through his public statements and songs? First, we'll take a look at a couple of key interviews from the 70s, and then we'll delve into the music. We're also going to try to suss out what Paul was experiencing internally, his desires and wishes and fears and apprehensions. We also want to emphasize that we in no way think Paul loved John any less than John loved him. Paul has spent the decades since 1980 talking about John and to John in the way people only talk about a great love of their life. Whether that love is platonic, romantic, queer platonic, homo-romantic, or any other label you want to put on it. At the time of the breakup, 
John and Paul had most likely been in love for years. Although our research suggests a turning point in 1968 where John wanted something more or something different from the relationship that Paul was not willing or able to give, that is not to say that Paul ever wanted to break up or was ever less invested in the relationship. Even in 1970, when he leaves the Beatles, Paul's parting words are, John's in love with Yoko and he's no longer in love with the other three of us. And let's face it, we were in love with the Beatles as much as anyone. Which incidentally may be his convoluted way of saying to John, I love you too. I absolutely, yeah, I think it is. Well, he also says in the McCartney press release that he loves John. Yeah. So he's definitely trying to get that through. To John. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And maybe John's kind of like, oh, you'll say it to the papers, but not to my face. Cool. I think, you know, the, the traditional way to read that is like, oh, look at Paul. He's so desperate and thirsty. rejected yeah. and thirsty that yeah. he's saying I love you all over the place. But that's generally not how you act when you're desperate and you think someone doesn't love you. Right. That's something you say when you're trying to reassure. I think so. Yeah. He almost seems apologetic in the way that he says it. And you don't apologize to someone if they're the one who broke your heart. Yeah. Right. Right. You say it to someone whose heart you broke. Yeah. I think he's saying that for John. And he's saying it on his way out the door. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he is not saying this to woo John back at all. Whatever, two, three months later, he writes John that they should, quote, let each other out of the (laughs) trap. Yeah, he's not, he's not begging for John to come back. But Paul has every reason to believe at this point that that's how John sees it too, because that's what, that's what John's saying. Yeah. The Beatles were a trap and he's trapped and he has to be free with Yoko. So, I mean... That's what you get, John. And Paul saying, oh, fine. I love you. I'm letting That's right. you go. That's right. Be free, mm. John. <laughs> but the, uh, if I'm going to unlock your shackle, you need to unlock my shackle. That's right. Yeah. Which who in the world would, you know, <laughs> dispute that? <laughs> John and John alone. One thing that I think does come through in this quote, too, is Paul saying, I'm doing this because it's what you wanted, John. Like (laughs) saying John's no longer in love with us or me, however you want to take it, is definitely Paul's way of laying the blame on John. Both to the world and to John. Exactly. In the same interview, like literally several sentences above that, he says, last year, John said he wanted a divorce. All right, so do I. I want to give him that divorce. Like he is definitely saying you asked for a divorce. You you started it. Yeah. And you you had six months to walk it back too. like not with, you know, your half-ass coded press statements or, (laughs) or you write instant karma, but with words to my face. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whatever the hell instant karma was agro romantic nonsense. But on the other hand, I mean, Maybe part of why Paul was hard to get a hold of is because he kind of didn't want John to be able to walk it back. Mm. Do you know what I mean? 
sometimes I really get the feeling from Paul in the breakup that it's just like he he doesn't want it, but he also kind of does. Like he he's really sick of the downsides. Yes. Of the Beatles and the relationship with John. It's gotten to the point where it's just not tenable for him anymore. The good parts are still really good, but the bad parts have gotten so bad. I definitely agree with you. And I think John saying, I want a divorce was hurtful enough and like scarring and traumatic enough to Paul that he's Mm -hmm. just like, I am done. I'm fucking done with you. And it's not that that's the opposite of saying, well, Paul didn't care. I'm definitely not saying he didn't care anymore. I'm saying he cared a lot. I think he hit a breaking point. Yeah. And he just couldn't leave himself vulnerable to having those things said to him anymore or leave himself vulnerable to being treated like Cynthia. Paul is the one who specifically says John mentioned Cynthia in the divorce meeting. I want a divorce like the one I got from Cynthia which makes it all very real like john can't be using divorce as a euphemism there if he follows it up with like the literal actual divorce i got from my ex-wife with lawyers and alimony and the whole deal right and aside from that paul watched john beat vicious to cynthia during that divorce there is a good chance that on some level paul was thinking fuck i better get out of here before it gets to that point i don't want that And probably, you know, his wife is probably like, enough already. Now he's finally got somebody beside him who's reality checking him. And it's just like, what are you Mm -hmm. doing? What is going on? Like, you don't need to put up with him joy and comfort and isn't ping pong balling him constantly. Yeah. I think Paul would, would, would have loved the relationship to go back to when it was more good than bad. I mean, how many times does he express the sentiment of, can you know, can he take me back where I came from once there was a way to get back home? But he understands that they can't go back and what it is at the moment yeah. just isn't, isn't enough. It's too much. It's too much and not enough. Well, and that's really telling too, that like even as early as summer of 68 or whenever that was written, you know, Paul knows they've hit a turning point and it's whatever it was that happened, right. he wants to make it not have happened. Mm-hmm. Yep. And maybe for a while he thought with his awesome power, power of denial, style, yeah. <laughs> he, he could actually turn back the hands of time. Exactly. Like if um, we both believe hard enough, John. That's <laughs> right. You know, in John's defense, like how sustainable is that situation? You Not, know what I mean? Like I'm supposed no. to maintain this, uh, you know, close relationship to you where we're just pretending that this enormous thing isn't between us? Of course not. Of course not. It's not good for John at this point either at all. And as scary as I'm sure that is to Paul, and as much as he doesn't want to give up the relationship with John, I'm sure he knows that on some level. Yeah. Well, he does say, I don't think it would be good for John. He says, I didn't leave the Beatles. The Beatles have left the Beatles. (laughs) But no one wants to be the one to say the party's over. Last year, John said he wanted a divorce. All right. So do I. I want to give him that divorce. I hate this trial separation because it's just not working. Personally, I don't think John could do the Beatles thing now. I don't think it would be good for him. So again, John, you asked for the divorce. You've got your new thing now. You're not into the Beatles anymore. And I'm not going to beg you to come back. So rock on, John. 
but just to be clear we're not saying that john loves paul more even though i do think john believes that um yeah yeah i don't know if, if paul would agree i i think paul believes that they loved each other equally that is his message for sure i think that impasse is probably in terms of how long can we carry on like this are we going to live together forever in beetle land with our hamster tubes running between the <laughs> houses or are we going to call it quits and be grown-ups and, yeah. and make our own families again we covered this extensively in episode four the bottom line though is that it results with them both feeling hurt as everyone in Beatles fandom is aware and likes to point out, Paul tends to stick to the same old stories. So 99% of the time, we are not getting new info from him. But there actually is some new info and interesting info in the lyrics book. <laughs> yes, we haven't read it cover to cover, as it is a rather voluminous set of books. <laughs> but we have read the applicable portions for the sake of this episode. So... We can add it to our long list of sources. That's right. Although it's funny because we got the book midway through recording this episode. And some of what we said was validated after the fact by the book. Like you will hear my synesthesia theory later, <laughs> which has been confirmed yes. by the lyrics book. Um, and also Phoebe's summation of Dear Friend, which is almost word for word with Paul's. Yes. <laughs> We're not to brag. Not to brag, but, <laughs> but we're we nailed brag it. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Paul is obviously much less forthcoming about his innermost feelings. He talks about them way less than than John did. And in general, he actually talks about John less than vice versa. However, because he's outlived John by 41 years, that certainly creates the illusion that, you know. Paul's talking about John. I mean, Paul does talk about John all the time. He gets asked about him all the time and he's happy to talk about him. He hasn't been talking about him for longer than John has been famous. Longer than John has been alive. Alive, yeah. Tragically deceased, beloved hero to the world, John Lennon, no less. Yes. And sometimes I feel like that that is the John Lennon that he's talking about. He's not necessarily always talking about his John Lennon. Point being, the ratio of interviews given by Paul versus John over time is outrageously disproportionate. Paul has been famous for 60 years. John was oh famous for God. 20 years. Of course, there's so much more about John coming from Paul. Yes. So that's just important to note because it massively skews both Paul's perspective on the relationship but also our perspective on paul's perspective this may <laughs> sound like a sort of obvious thing to say but it's something that a lot of people including authors like peter doggett and mark lewison in our opinion don't always take into consideration so this point we think is really important um that whenever paul talks about john or their relationship post 1980 we have got to consider the circumstances, how long he's had to process, reflect, and come to terms with the greater implications of their bond. We have to take into account not just the fact that it is post-80, but I think we need to factor in how post-80 it is. The way he talks about John in 1982 is very hmm. different from how he right. talks about John in 1995. 
Right. Which yeah. is also different from 2005, which is also Absolutely. different from 2019. Some of it is new information coming out. Like we have to realize that some stuff that we learn about John Paul is learning in real time too. True, true. There's Paul's own feelings and how his feelings mature and develop over time based on whatever he's going through in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how he's changing as a person. But then also changes that are made in society and stuff. I'm old enough to, I can tell you for a fact that 2021 <laughs> is a much different world from say 2001. Yes. The world has changed a lot in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think something that's interesting for Paul, I think, is that he is now in the position of having a lot of grandkids who are yes. probably imparting information. He's probably like, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. So that's a complicating factor. But there's also the complicating factor, which is huge, that Paula has had to play all of this out on the world stage with a billion commentators standing by analyzing and criticizing yeah. his every word and action. He was put in an extremely weird situation by John's death that like we I just don't think a normal person can comprehend yeah anyway the point is that all of this makes it so much harder to assess Paul's point of view even in 1970 and 71 during the worst of their public fighting mostly he stayed on message which is my beef is with Klein I want out but but going back to the uh, the issue at hand, which is the mid seventies, um, regarding the whole you know Paul was desperate to get back together myth, um, I'm never sure precisely what that's based on, because Paul's comments on this matter in the seventies, at least, are fairly ambivalent. John's comments are ambivalent also on this subject. But John tends to run the gamut a bit more from hostile mm. to enthusiastic. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, from the Beatles were the worst time in my life and destroyed me to... Nothing will ever break the love we have for each other. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Paul's fairly moderate comparatively. Like he's, <laughs> he's pretty in the middle. And whether that reflects how he actually feels or whether it's just a case of him playing his cards close to the vest we don't know like we just went through a whole thing where we're like paul doesn't share his innermost feelings but it makes no sense to take him being moderate (laughs) and and tepid and decide that that's actually evidence that he greatly desired a reunion (laughs) right maybe he did secretly but people talk about it as if it's fact yeah if he was over the top about how much he would hate to do that and it would be crazy and he'd never want to do it again then it would make a little yes. more sense to go okay paul calm down what- right are you pr- you're protesting a little oh, much too here. much there <laughs> but no all he does is like well you know never say never but yeah. i don't think so the evidence doesn't bear out the idea that paul was desperate to get back together it just doesn't the clip we played in episode one was probably the warmest paul has ever been at the prospect of reuniting And that was immediately after John fired Alan Klein in 1973 at like a period where John and Paul seemed to be very close, you know, Mm -hmm. over the phone. Uh, I think the one piece of evidence there is for 
Paul being desperate is the quote from Linda from the 1984 Playboy yes. interview, uh, yeah. where she literally uses the word desperate. She says, Paul was desperate to write with John again. And I know John was desperate to write. Well, desperate. there you go. But to that point, she's saying it's mutual. Well, absolutely. And she's saying it in 1984. It doesn't necessarily go for the entirety of the 70s. Right. Paul was a ball of desperation for 10 years. Well, and she's specifically talking about the house husband period. Like, just let's just read the quote. She is. So Linda says, after Paul leaves the room, (laughs) (laughs) Linda takes over and says... The sad thing is that John and Paul both had problems and they loved each other and boy, could they have helped each other if they had only communicated. It frustrates me to no end because I was just some chick from New York when I walked into all of that. God, if I'd known then what I know now, all I could do then was sit there watching them play these games. Playboy. But wasn't it clear that John wanted only to work with Yoko? Linda, no. (laughs) <laughs> just say it girl no. <laughs> Linda goes on I know that Paul was desperate to write with John again and I know John was desperate to write desperate people thought well he's taking care of Sean he's a house husband and all that but he wasn't happy he couldn't write and it drove him crazy and Paul could have helped him easily yeah so Linda's specifically talking about the, house the late years. 70s yeah, yeah yeah it's slightly out of the window of this era that we're talking about in the mid 70s it's sort of towards the end <laughs> it, it, like in this context linda is strictly talking about john and paul's songwriting yes but we know that was on the table in 1980 yeah. so that's yeah. why i take it to mean before he started writing again for double fantasy you know sure like in that period where he wasn't writing at all um, I think that's probably what she's referring to, like the 77 yeah. through 79 or whatever. Um, but, you know, as she says, if I'd known what I know now, um, which I take to mean that John was going to get shot, like, um, oh, it's just heartbreaking to think about that. Like they just they got very close, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't move fast enough. Yeah, well. That that makes sense. Although to me, it seems more like she's saying, I know things now because she she says it right after she's talking about when she walked in for during the Beatles. To me, it reads more like she is saying that there is information about their past or how they felt about each other that she now knows. And if she and had it, known it before, she she could have maybe facilitated their communication a bit. In 1969. Yeah. And or 68 or, or whatever. Okay. Well, it's yeah. hard. To, yeah. I, that's a totally valid read. Um, it's hard to say because it's almost a non sequitur. I was just some chick from New York when I walked into all that. God, if I'd known then, I could just sit there watching them play these games. So that's obviously post-68. And mm-hmm. then the question is, but wasn't it clear that John wanted only to work with Yoko, which <laughs> true, I would assume that the Playboy interviewer 
is talking about 1968 or 69. Yes. But and then Linda takes it into the 70s. Exactly. Which is interesting. But so I'm just trying to follow her train of thought. So then when the reporter asks her, well, wasn't it clear that John only wanted to work with Yoko? She says, no. (laughs) (laughs) Something Paul could never, ever say. Yeah, right. right, right, To that question. (laughs) Well, I almost feel like that that's her role here. I feel like they're pulling something out of the John and Yoko playbook at this. It could very easily be. Yeah, totally uh, scripted. Mm -hmm. She's saying what Paul can't say. Yeah. Although, I mean, she does call him desperate. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe after he was like, "Mm." (laughs) yeah, a little strong there. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. But then she's like, I don't, you told me to tell the truth. (laughs) Fuck it. You're not the boss of my words, my adjectives. Don't ask me to participate in your stupid games if you don't like how I do them. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but again, to frame it properly, that's, that's 1984. So there, so there are a few um, external, you know, variables that are that are yeah. going on there. And people it, are taking that quote of Linda's and retroactively applying it to to, in, to Paul's entire life. I mean, I, I think you can make a stronger case. I could make a stronger case um, that Paul is desperate to to write with John again in 1980. I get a lot of urgency from him um, and from yeah. his songwriting in, at that period. But um, in the 70s, the fairest thing to say is that they both have mixed feelings because there are plenty of interviews throughout the 70s where Paul is either lukewarm or even arguing against a reunion. Yeah. Is it likely to happen? No, I don't think so. I've been saying this about four years now, you know, looking earnest and saying, no, I don't think so. There's an interview with uh, Scott Osborne that, that Paul gave in London before he went to L.A. <laughs> that aired in March of 1974. And I do have audio for this, but it's not great. So apologies for the for the bad sound. But we do like to share audio whenever we can since tone does make a difference sometimes. So here we go. McCartney has asked if the Beatles myth can be created again. We'll see little bits of each other, but not much, you know. Is that the way it's going to stay? I think so, yeah. Right. Well, but we might do bits together, you know, we don't know yet. Every time I say that, there's, there's you know, some paper picks up the headline of Beatles to reform, you know. Right. Well, you know, so I'm a bit cautious about saying anything, but I think, you know, once we get our business problems sorted, to still being sorted, yeah. um, there's every chance we might just feel like getting together and doing something, you know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say what. Kind of a loose thing, I suppose. No. I think so, yeah. I don't think we'll get together as a band again. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I just don't think it'd work, actually, and it might not be as good, you know. You know, I mean, it would have been great had it have carried on. But seeing as he didn't, so what are you going to do? You know, you just... You think it went about as far as it was going to go? I think so. I think it went full circle, yeah. He says, I don't think we'd get together as a band again. I just don't think it would work, actually. And it might not be as good. This is, I think, the first sighting of the full circle (laughs) theory. (laughs) Soon to be followed by wedding bells and... Yeah. <laughs> army buddies yeah we were in the army yeah <laughs> <laughs> and reheating a souffle so much is made of george harrison's comment in 1974 that he'd never play in a band with paul again 
But Paul's saying essentially the same thing here in 1974. I mean, he's not calling out George specifically. No. Of course, because that's of not course. his style. He would not do no. that. But um, mm-hmm. he's not into reforming the Beatles. And he said it elsewhere. He compared reforming the Beatles to uh, reheating a souffle in 1974 in this interview. And he's, he used that phrase again in 79 and 80. So I'm going to read that full quote from George. Okay, so George literally starts out with, Paul is a fine bass player, (laughs) but he's a bit overpowering at times. To tell the truth, I'd join a band with John Lennon any day, but I wouldn't join a band with Paul McCartney. It's nothing personal. It's just from a musical point of view. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. whether whether that's a genuine complaint about Paul's bass playing or about, uh, you know, <laughs> Paul's whatever MO in the studio. Yeah, I think it's all of the above. But to that point, I think it's pretty fair to say that Paul feels the same about George. Yeah. That they're, you know, they're not the most compatible. They didn't have the most harmonious of professional relationships, which we get a lot of testimony to from third yeah. parties yeah. like it, it sounds crazy to say they weren't compatible because they collaborated in the most successful band of all time and created <laughs> some of the most timeless yeah. music of all time together uh but i still think it's true we have evidence that paul wanted to work with john again and he did work with ringo again in the 70s yeah. but not with george so i you know some people might say well he would have if george had allowed it but i well, there's no evidence of that. Though. There's no evidence of that yet. I mean, the fact, the fact well, that Paul doesn't insult George in public isn't evidence that he wanted to play with him again. Well, and what isn't like the main the main bone of contention between them is that Paul doesn't value George's right music yeah. or contributions or input enough. So why is he going to be begging George to come collaborate with him when he doesn't want to collaborate with him even when they're in the same <laughs> band? Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Of course, right, Paul yeah. doesn't want to play with him either. So that's yeah. fine. I think we have enough uh, evidence that Paul is interested in writing and or performing with John in, in, in like a general sense, but I don't get the impression he's ever interested in doing Beatles again. Yeah, maybe he's, you know, hedging his bets a little in public. Sure. Same way, you know, John plays it cool in public too. You know, both of them are posturing a little bit from time to time. Yeah, playing hard to get, as Paul would later say. If we're simply looking at what comes out of their mouths, Paul seems fairly open to it kind of all the time. But sometimes he is unenthusiastic about it. (laughs) Right. Anyway, the point is... Um, that this lopsided dynamic of Paul desperately trying to get the Beatles back together is just sort of made up by authors after the fact. Um, I, I guess to retrofit the fact that Paul did not want the band to break up in 1969, which he didn't. Correct. But to be clear, that's a separate issue from reuniting. It's a completely separate issue. Paul is consistent about not wanting to break up in 1969 even Mm -hmm. in that 1974 quote where he's saying he's cold on reuniting even then he reiterates you know i didn't want it to break up in the first place but it broke up so what the hell yeah so i mean from that perspective the very fact that john and paul 
do want to get back together at any point is remarkable. Paul doesn't share much, but he does have a few milestone stories about John that he hits repeatedly. Um, and he has also said several times that anything I have to say, I will put it in a song, which I believe, but makes it really, really hard to suss out his feelings for John and his point of view here, because we don't know what songs are for or about John. And even when we guess, Paul's lyrics tend to be poetically vague and subject to broad interpretation or poetically specific that in a way that we don't know about exactly beautiful images that are very like concrete and specific but they could be interpreted any number of ways well and they could mean something which is what specific I... to john that we're not privy right to. yeah which is something that i love about paul zurich's he's an imagist oh, but do like you say <laughs> it sets up a challenge for us well you definitely can't interpret them literally i mean no they're not literal right so that makes it kind of hard so i think what ends up happening is that people very often just project onto him whatever they already believe or whatever they want to believe <laughs> um <laughs> So that's very, very tricky. And we're trying to avoid that trap rather than taking the songs literally sort of uh, trying to figure out what is the overall emotion behind the songs? What is the overall message? And sometimes- Correct. That, sometimes yeah. that's conveyed in the, uh, the music. Absolutely. Or the uh, tone of voice that he sings in. Yes. I mean, so much- emotion in his voice he's a very versatile singer he can do mm -hmm. a lot of different things with his voice including um become different people like he can he can uh become... characters my main thing that i want to say before we start sort of parsing these songs out is that i firmly believe that paul is capable of writing a song that contains more than one idea that originates from more than one source of inspiration or that is directed at more than one target. I feel like that's probably his default. More often than not, that's what he's doing. Yes. So, you know, just as Paul's able to endlessly multitask as an instrumentalist <laughs> and vocalist, uh, I, uh, I think his writing can contain several different ideas that might be going in different directions. Same way he can write a bass line with a completely separate melody from the piano or the guitar or the vocal or, or what have you. I think his lyrics are sometimes layered in this way also, which is why they don't always have a linear structure. So we just can't always assume that each song has a, a, you know, a storyline from beginning to end that is mm -hmm. transparently about a thing in reality. Right. That's not how his muse works most right. of the time. Right. Yeah. So he might say one thing in a song that is directed specifically to John, but the rest of the song might not have anything to do with it. Like we demonstrated with no words, for example. Um, and since we're not John, we 
don't necessarily have the best perspective on that. Well, and I, I think he does that with Linda too. Like sometimes I hear lines that I think that sounds like it's for Linda, but the rest of the song doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with all those caveats, <laughs> <laughs> we're still going to do it. We're going to take an educated guess about <laughs> the songs that Paul may have written with John in mind, same as we've done and will continue to do for John. We believe that Paul desperately wants to make up with John, heal their friendship, First and foremost. First and foremost, yeah. We believe Paul loves John as a person, not just as a co-creator. Right. I think that John probably had moments where he worried that Paul didn't love him enough, that he was just interested in using him. But we don't believe that. We don't believe that. Yeah. It's not about money. This is not, this is about love. Yeah. It's stupid. You don't care that much about like it. Who cares when you're making it hand over fist without that person? Well, exactly, exactly. Paul doesn't need the money, and also nobody would go through all this for money. Oh no, <laughs> it's not a walk in the park. You know, like this relationship is extremely demanding, and like it, absolutely a source yeah. of a lot of no, pain and heartbreak on both sides. So it's it's the thing. It's a thing you only go through. If you're in love. Yeah. Ram and Plastic Ono Band both express a lot of hurt and anger. But this series, Pizza and Fairy Tales, is focusing on the detente rather than the war. And this episode in particular is looking at Paul's material beginning with 1971's Wildlife. We will start with the song that calls for a ceasefire. Dear friend. The demo is more, I feel like, raw hurt and mournful. Mm -hmm. And like, he's really leaning into that on the um, piano and stuff. Yeah. But I feel like maybe the more he played it, He's kind of getting a little bit of irritation and aggression out. Agreed. Yep. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds sometimes that he's like, hey, friend, what the fuck? Right. Yeah, there's defiance there. Okay, first of all, are you fucking (laughs) stupid? Right. Are you an idiot or do you really believe what you're shoveling? Thanks for just fucking raking me over the coals in Rolling Stone magazine. That felt fucking awesome. Yeah, are we really doing this? Are we really going to push it over the line to the point of no return? Are you really going to just torch this bridge to the ground? Yeah. Well, it's also very interesting, and I think fuel to our other thesis, that the rupture between them was more personal and that it had to do with a perceived rejection because he doesn't say, I'm sorry I got to this point, I, you know, I was exhausted. I couldn't do it anymore. Or I'm sorry. I just couldn't accept Klein. He says, I'm sorry I got married, but we're really in love. And yes. like, why is that what he has to explain to John? That And that's the thing that nobody talks about, including Paul, right. by the way. Well, of course not. Because, you know, that bears some explaining. I know that it drove you crazy that I fell in love with someone else. But there's anything to see there, but (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, and he's also saying like, Linda's my friend too. It's not just about wanting a family or, you know, yeah. meeting a woman or whatever. Like I, she's my, she's my person. Yeah. But so you are also my person. Well, you know, if you're John in that situation, it definitely would be preferable to tell yourself that that's the only reason that he's, well, of course. that he's with her. Well, and that seems to be what he thinks because he is apparently confounded by the fact that they're still together in 1977 or whatever. And he's confounded by the fact that they're still together in 1971. John says in the St. Regis interview from September 1971 that Klein wants Paul back in the fold. And then he adds, I mean, I want him to come out of it too. You know, I give him five years. I've said that in five years, he'll wake up. He's like bragging about it. I've said five years. (laughs) Yeah. Like he thinks that in five years, you know, he'll be able to point back to that and say, oh, look, I was right aren't you glad i said this thing in public it's so insane and then then yoko chimes in and says klein thinks he'll give paul two years linda wise you know and john said no paul treasures things like children things like that it will be longer (laughs) it's just so inappropriate let him knock her up one more time he's gonna pump (laughs) one more baby out of her first it's one thing for John to think that. I mean, whatever. Paul <laughs> yeah, was, a, yeah, right. was a giant slut, and lots of men are like that. But to say it and to have his wife say it to the paper. Yeah, that's, that's just wild. beyond the pale. Especially since John is, I think, in this same interview going on about how horribly Paul treated Yoko and their relationship. He's turning around and roping Klein and Yoko together in a little posse to publicly speculate on when the McCartney marriage will end. It totally trashes their whole marriage in a really cold and dehumanizing way. Two years Linda-wise. And to make all this Linda stuff, to blame her for the breakup, which is essentially what they're doing, and I guess they would say it's it's because of linda's father and brother john and lee eastman well and also let me just ask what for real though like how many guys are mad at their male buddies for being sluts zero why is that even something that's even in John's mind? Oh, well, their marriage won't last because Paul can't fucking stay committed to anybody. He's such a fucking cheater. What are you talking about? Why? This again, from the St. Regis interview, was it the suddenness of Linda's arrival on the scene that disrupted things? John. Well, Paul had met her before the Apple press conference, you see. I mean, there were quite a few women he'd obviously had that I never knew about. God knows when he was doing it, but he must have been doing it. I'm sorry, but that's not normal. That <laughs> it is to not. something else. Well, it absolutely does. Like it's normal to platonically be jealous of your best friend. Just you get less of their time because they're now with someone like bridesmaids like that. You know, that's a thing. Yeah. But you usually don't get 
bitter about the fact that oh now you're committed to someone like exactly exactly if he's like listen paul and linda aren't that fucking great because he's stepping out on her anyway he has been the whole time so whatever that's one thing if he just wanted to tear them down as a couple and be like who do they think they are but he's not he's like good luck linda because he's a cheating sack of shit yeah which is weird that speaks (laughs) to something completely different and not for nothing but if we're gonna go with the purely platonic like john just is sad that he (laughs) is getting less of paul's time paul was already busy elsewhere he was already spread thin (laughs) well yeah exactly like you know he's married now so linda's getting a lot of his time and attention but before he was married all of his millions of one night stands were getting a lot of his time too so i don't know that john's really getting less it's emotional she's getting more of paul's love there's no other read to it it's not like we can twist ourselves in a million knots trying to make this make some kind of sense but it doesn't yeah. or we could just he's go just with jealous. what makes the most sense. yes <laughs> maybe the reason why he acts jealous is because he's jealous like we don't right. to- yes So it is fairly well known among Beatle people that Paul wrote and demoed Dear Friend before How Do You Sleep was released. Yeah. I think the fact that he went with it is a message. Well, Dear Friend was written in response to Lennon Remembers. And if Paul had, you know, if How Do You Sleep had come out and Paul had thought, well, this song is now hasn't aged well, I no longer feel these things, then he wouldn't have released it. So I think, you know, we can still extrapolate how he was feeling yeah i think people wildly underestimate how hurtful plastic ono band was to paul too sure it's that that aspect of of plastic ono band is never explored but paul very clearly states that dear friend is in reaction to lennon remembers and plastic ono band he there's a quote from him here he says since we were kids this had been the whole dream now here was John saying the dream is over. So, okay, what do you do when you wake up? Ouch. Primal scream therapy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think the I don't believe in Beatles was, was very hurtful to Paul. Paul almost never talks about it. So I understand Paul? why people don't focus on it. But I, I think the I don't believe in Beatles was very hurtful to Paul because it's a rejection of everything they built together. Here's a question. This is an interesting debate if we want to get into it for a minute. Okay. Do you think Dear Friend helped things between John and Paul? I don't know. I really don't. Um, I think maybe just the fact that Paul is sounding hurt and sad, that that at the very least, that that would have been reassuring to John. I don't I don't know though. I mean as 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 you and I discussed this this song is wounded but it's mm-hmm. also a little not aggressive but it's a pointed. little pointed. Yeah. It is. You know how how Paul's like if we could just get together and sign a piece of paper we could be done with this. It's I not would be a, free from the trap of you, which is what you want too, right? He assumes the worst. Mm-hmm. Also, he's you know, of course. So he's like, why don't we just finish it and be done with each other? Then, yeah. 
that's not a peace offering. Well, I agree. Ceasefire. It's a ceasefire. Let's take a step back. Right. Because you're being stupid. You're being an asshole. And the other thing is that this is just me. This is my impression. Apparently nobody else gets this impression. So perhaps I'm insane or this is Mm -hmm. some great information that people should really take notes right now. (laughs) Or you're an oracle. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Or I'm a genius. So at the end of December, 1971, uh, Paul and Linda go over to John and Yoko's apartment in New York and they all have dinner together and they agree to stop fighting in public. And it's something that they've both commented on. Obviously, we don't know the details of what went on when they saw each other. But my impression always is that Paul wasn't like, John, you really hurt my feelings. Please stop. And and John was like, oh, I'm so moved by your tears and your patheticness. I will show you mercy and stop (laughs) fighting with you. My feeling is it was more like Paul was like, John, you need to chill the fuck out right now. Because John seems to me slightly admonished, slightly, ever so slightly, mm-hmm. and not in a way where he feels guilty. It's like he, like a bucket of cold water was thrown on, on him mm-hmm. because he seems, for the first time, he seems slightly embarrassed by his own behavior. <laughs> that is the tone I get. And so I, I agree. granted, I'm making a leap, but I'm extrapolating that it was either either that song or that meeting that told John, like, you need to back off right now. Yeah. Take it down a notch, John. And that aligns more, I think, with our interpretation of the song. I agree. I mean, it's certainly possible that John could have come to that conclusion on his own. Everyone says that he would apologize after doing something bad. Or he got a little bit but, of pushback. He got a little pushback. For, well, that's for the other thing. He got yeah. a lot of pushback. So I can... I can see it having nothing to do with Paul, him becoming a little sheepish, not to make more ram puns. (laughs) Um, If you're in that kind of hysteria, like if you're in that sort of frenzy Mm -hmm. and the person you're doing that to is like, please take it down a fucking notch, you know? Squirts you with a water bottle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's like, listen, I have a wife now, okay? Yeah. I've moved on. You wanted to move on. I've moved on. You said you have moved on. So what the fuck are we doing, John? If somebody says that to you... You might realize, oh, I've been showing my hand more than I wanted to. Yeah. You might back off. Yep. Not not because you feel bad necessarily, but because you're like, oh, shit. Lyrically, Paul's song, Some People Never Know, has actual references to How Do You Sleep? Because he has the line that some people can sleep at night, believing that love is a lie. 
which would seem to be a response to how do you sleep? Yeah, would seem to be. Agreed. It was recorded on July 25th, 1971. So we have to assume Paul is aware of how do you sleep by that point. Um, the how do you sleep session occurred on May 26th. So it certainly wouldn't be uncharacteristic of Paul to write a song immediately after he caught wind of it, <laughs> since he's writing a new song like every day at this point. Yes. Yeah. So for the sake of the conversation, we are going to assume that some people never know is a response to how do you sleep? As we said, certainly the lyrics slot very nicely together as Paul is throwing shade at people who can <laughs> sleep at nighttime, believing that love is a lie. Which to me sounds like Paul is talking about certain people <laughs> who will remain nameless, <laughs> casting aspersions on his and Linda's love, which was not just John and Yoko, by the way. Linda was getting it from all sides at that time. Yeah, true. Um, but believing love is a lie might also be specifically about John's renunciation of the Beatles and Lennon McCartney, which of course went hand in hand with all his Janov inspired love is a lie. <laughs> and the line, no one else will ever see how much faith you have in me might also be for John because Paul knows that John respects him, even though no one else might see it at the time because John's been so busy running him down in the press and doing a really good job acting like he thinks Paul is crap. Well, if that line is, is to John, no one else will ever see how much faith you have in me. Then I think he's, then, uh, then I would interpret that as him saying, you know that I love you. Yes. Right. If, if he's saying, John, you have faith in me. And then some people can sleep at nighttime, meaning you buddy right believing that love is right. a lie like you you tell yourself that it was a lie so that you can, can sleep at night exactly yeah um, you know it was real between us can't believe you're buying all this bullshit <laughs> and telling yourself that it's true so that you can do this shit to me and feel fine about it yeah yeah i could see and that i can also just as easily hear that as a song to linda or absolutely a line to linda because if he's if he's singing to his lady and he's saying no one else will ever see how much faith you have in me that that's more in the ram vein where paul's kind of rubbing john's face like like mm. like rubbing his face on a pillow or something and he's just like <laughs> thank god linda you're here and you have faith in me and you support me and you love me, yes. unlike some unlike garbage people. Some people. <laughs> and then, <laughs> like John has to tell himself that our love is a lie because he's not over me and he wants me to be miserable and he can't stand the fact that I found somebody that I'm in love with. Yes. Like if that's true, then this song is a little more of a fuck you. But that is certainly a possibility and wouldn't be inconsistent with Paul's, Paul's character. character. I mean, it's it's very it's very loving to <laughs> Linda. It's very soft to because it's a soft yeah. song. So I'm saying he could be being soft to Linda with you know sticking his finger out. Fuck you, John. It doesn't even have to be for John. It could be him talking to Linda about yeah, about that's true. John that's true. Saying, that's true you know, I'm in a really tough place with my ex-partner and you are 
what keeps me going you know like and Paul's allowed to talk about his pain that's, <laughs> you it, know? that's true it's true and he can say and, just forget about the bullshit that's coming from over there sure some people can sleep at nighttime could also mean but I'm not one of those I if I believed that love was a lie that's what would make me not be able to that would keep me up at night mm. so he's sort of he's again affirming that love is real and important and powerful only love can stand the test then he says only you outshine the rest that i could take to be obviously could be linda or john you know he's saying to linda you're the best thing that's ever happened to me but also to john like you're the best friend i've ever had and you know the person i respect most as an artist so what so what do you make of only fools take second best that's got to be for john right it either means you know you've taken second best with your you know elephant's memory band and or yoko yikes brutal paul or it could mean him that you know wings is his second best he'd rather have john and the beatles but so be it that's the situation he's in it could be a jab i guess at, at john if he's saying yoko is second best to me that's more along sure. the lines of you took your lucky break and broke it absolutely that makes this song but meaner and nastier but but it um, could also be soft and sort of self-deprecating like oh look we're such fools we let it slip away you know and now we're taking second best when if we'd stayed together we would have had each other plus we know that paul identifies as a fool you know on on the higher level like the fool on the hill <laughs> yeah yeah and like the tarot card fool the card that he would always draw yeah yeah but he also asks in dear friend are you a fool are you a fool i know so that's it seems way but more it's, yeah. yeah but i think anytime he uses that i think there's always layers it's a puzzle it is so okay <laughs> probably so was to john too he probably heard this and was like god damn it would you just say something are you fucking with me or are you are being you telling sweet? me i don't understand yeah exactly yeah. right <laughs> just fucking say it already yeah right um and maybe that's part of paul's you know he's like oh you're gonna fuck with me i'll fuck with you right back mr I'll make you jealous guy slash how do you sleep yeah right. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i'm gonna put it all in one song though so obviously only fools take second best is not directed at linda <laughs> He's not telling her, well, I guess you'll do. No, no, no. But he could be, that could be directed at Linda in that you outshine the rest and I'm certainly not taking second best. So of course I've chosen you. Oh, that's, that's what I'm saying. Mm. Okay. But yeah, nevertheless, but it's so some people never know, but nevertheless, some people never get that. They'll never understand how amazing you are yeah well i mean yes. that's that's ram too that's dear boy yeah that is kind of a similar sentiment to silly love songs how can i explain the feelings plain to me she gave it all she gave it all to me totally yeah where, where he's like she is the best the best exactly <laughs> like i deserve everything too I don't know. I mean, I could see only fools take second best to be a almost like a defense to John. Like, 
I have to take the whole package, John. I can't. What what am I going to do? Yeah, no, I could see that, too. Although only fools take second best is still kind of a puzzle. I still see it primarily as being self-deprecating. It's like, oh, what fools we were to let other things and people come between us. Now we're taking second best like musically and artistically like we could have we could have still had each other oh yeah yeah. right 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 but we because because only you outshine the rest and so do i (laughs) we know we know paul knows he's hot Mm, shit yeah 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 so and then but but because we got caught up in all of this madness and we were so silly right we threw out the baby with the bath water exactly now and that was foolish we were fools to do it but it's done but it's so. But That's meanwhile, a... you don't have to be such a dick. <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> also, I love you. But he actually says earlier in the song, like a fool, I'm far away. I think he's calling everyone a fool. I think he's calling himself a fool there. I think he's calling John a fool in Can Sleep at Nighttime. And I think he's calling the world a fool when he says only fools would disagree with the fact that you have faith in me. Wow. Like everyone's, just, everyone's just an idiot in that song. Well, if he says, like a fool, I'm far away, mm-hmm. then he's not talking to Linda. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that can't be that. Can't be no. that. Like a fool, I'm far away outside while you're cooking me dinner. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, and he yeah, says... Paul is so needy. He does not get credit. Enough credit for being a big ball of neediness. Yeah. Well, it's weird because John John is kind of needy on Maine. You know? Uh-huh. Like, he yep. kind of advertises his neediness. He, absolutely, yeah. And he's like... Hey everybody, I can't breathe without Yoko. And like Paul's like, well shit, I can't breathe without Linda, but I don't go advertising it. Say it. (laughs) I can't talk to an interviewer unless her hands in my crotch. Yeah, right. But I'm hoping no one will notice. (laughs) I'm not gonna draw attention to it. I'm certainly not gonna brag about it like you, weirdo. Right, right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make it weird. <laughs> I'm just gonna make it my secret shame. Yeah, right. <laughs> like a normal person. So, in the, some people never know. There is the line, "I know I was wrong, make me right." So, what when he says, "I know I was wrong," what is he talking about there? What was he? What does he feel he was wrong about? Mm, I don't know. That's a great question. I was wrong to reject you. Or, you know, I went about it the wrong way. I could have been kinder to Yoko, I guess. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just kind of thinking of them having a confrontation and Paul losing his temper. Oh, sure. Just being an asshole. Saying something really mean. Yeah. Sure. And John may have never had that directed at him before. It might have really hurt his feelings. Mm. You know, it's totally possible. And it's sweet that he's granting John the power to, like, make him right. You know, like, John is on the moral high ground and he could pull Paul up onto it to make him right. 
Well, he's saying make me right, and then yeah. in in Little Lamb, he's saying make it make right. it right. Mm-hmm. It does sound more like make me right and make it right is more like absolve me. Yeah, yeah, forgive me. It's interesting to me where that he says, um, "I'm only a person like you, love, and who in the world can be right all the right times?" Which cut, I cut think, me a break. Yeah, yeah. Stop comparing me to Jesus. Like I, I'm not <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not. A, I'm not a religion. I'm not perfect. You know, which is kind of funny because I'm sure that there were times that Paul, you know, enjoyed being on the pedestal. A pedestal. Sure. Yeah but when you fall off of it it's suddenly not so fun anymore Mm-mm-mm. maybe he's saying i i understand that i was wrong about you and yoko and it's it is true love between yep. you guys yep i mean that is something that he admits in interviews that his reaction was from jealousy and maybe some just narrow-mindedness or whatever uh yeah. he's over it now yeah he's over it now Although, <laughs> is, is again, that really what John wants? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm not sure that that's what, well, I am sure that that wasn't the biggest thing that John was angry with him about. Yeah, but on the surface it is. I mean, according exactly. to like the official story and what John tells. John, what John is actually saying with his mouth. Yeah, exactly. Which is, which is very, very frustrating because if John's telling Lennon remembers like, I'm mad at Paul because he was so rude to Yoko and he didn't accept her and that he yeah. should love her. And, and Paul's her the band. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. And then Paul's like, I know that you guys are really in love. I'm sorry I didn't respect her. And then John's like, What that's not what I'm mad about, you moron. Oh my God. You really don't know me at all. Yeah. If you think that <laughs> I mean what I say. Yeah, I mean, I guess right? unless that is what he's mad about. But if that's what he's mad about, then like nobody liked her. And I'm not saying that to, to dump on her. I'm just saying like nobody it's responded well to her. It, it is literally a fact. And yeah, probably Ringo reacted the least strongly of them mm-hmm. all. And it is true that you, that Ringo got along best with John and Yoko Although it's not as if he and Yoko don't have disputes either, because they do. He took a little bit of time to warm up, too. And he's less invested, I think, too. (laughs) Well, exactly. He's not deep in the bullshit like Paul and and George are. No. No, he's not. (laughs) He's like, listen, I joined your pre-existing trio of (laughs) dumbassery, so I can roll with it. But like the, the sort of love triangle of Paul, George, and John... I don't, th- I definitely think Ringo's not a part of that. Like he's on the outside. Of I that. agree. I agree. Probably and happy to be so. <laughs> exactly. And he's like, <laughs> I will stay outside this triangle forever. I love all three of you guys. Okay. I love all three of you guys. Yeah. And I, I, and you three all love each other. So I'm, I'm whatever I can do to help things along. That's right. I'll do it. It'll work out. Yeah. How, how would, I mean, how would you care? How would you characterize uh, George, Paul, and Ringo? reaction to uh, it's the same we can quote Paul you can look at it in the papers he said many times that first he hated Yoko and then he got to like her it's too late for me you know and for Yoko you know why should she take that kind of shit from those people and George gave her the 
was insulted her right to her face in, in, in Apple office at the beginning, just being straightforward. You know, that game of, well, I'm going to be up front because this is what I've heard, and Dylan and a few people said you've got a lousy name in New York, and uh, you, you give off bad vibes. That's what George said to her, and we both sat through it, and I didn't hit him, I don't know why. But I was always hoping that they'd come round. I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And they all sat there with their wives like a fucking jury and judged us. And the only thing I did was write that piece about some of our beast friends. And in my usual way, because I, I was never honest, I always had to write it in that gobbledygook. And that's what they did to us. Ringo was all right, so was Maureen. Mm. But the other two really gave it to us. You know, I never forgive them. You know, I don't care what fucking shit about Hare Krishna and God and Paul about, well, I've changed my mind. You know. I don't forgive him for that. Well, first of all, like, who does he sound more angry about in that clip? Paul or George? George. Definitely George. And, yeah. and he goes off on a whole rant about George. Yeah. And, and he says, Paul changed his mind. Right. Paul said he at first he hated her, which is not a direct quote, John. You're no. paraphrasing a little bit, but yes. Paul said at first I didn't like her or I was jealous or whatever. And then I changed my mind. And I got to know him. And that was, but even then John's admitting that there was a rocky start that we all know about, but then right. changed his tune and became very supportive and, and chilled out. Yeah. yeah. John sounds genuinely angry. He so does, yeah. I, I do believe that he was upset about that. Like I, I yeah. believe that that's true. And I believe that he was angry at Paul and George for how they treated Yoko. Although, you know, four months later or whatever, George is playing on John's Imagine album. So whatever to that, you know, yeah. he's like, I'll never forget. I'll never forgive. And then yeah. like four months yeah. later, whatever. Um, <laughs> so I believe that he is angry, but at the same time, if there was some situation where, you know, like an unrequited love situation or whatever, uh-huh. and then after that sort of rejection, then Paul has the nerve, you know, to be jealous of Yoko and to not, you know, like that would drive, mm-hmm. that would drive John crazy. Like, how dare you? Of You're course. giving me an emotional reaction. I can see that this bothers you. I, I know that you like me. I know you've got feelings and that you have the audacity to be rude to her. Yep. That would be even more maddening. It would. And I think that's why Paul tries not to be like that. Yeah. I think that's why everyone around them is kind of like, Paul, why aren't you doing your job to like, why aren't you telling John that this is not okay for her to be here? And I think Paul refusing to do that is for exactly that reason. How could he possibly do that? And again, if we're talking about Paul wasn't great for what? two three months and then for the right. rest of his life he's like being nice to them and trying to make it up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's crazy yeah so that's it's that's not what it appears to be <laughs> you know agreed agreed There's yeah more to it before we move on though like how hilarious is it that john calls bs on george pulling the i'm just being honest card <laughs> before insulting yoko <laughs> that's his like, favorite card right. <laughs> it's like that's a picture of john on the back of that card <laughs> john john is just mad that george stole something from his playbook his number one go-to it's true it's like that's my trick <laughs> 
Little Lamb Dragonfly is a song that often is considered to be about John or partially about John. Um, although again, there's there's no official support for that. I don't think correct. Paul has ever mentioned that or confirmed no. it in any way. Um, nope. So this is just sort of fan slash author speculation. So the first half of the song is actually about one of Paul's lambs that died, that mm -hmm. he held as it died. And, and again, not to not to beat this into the ground or whatever, but it is another reminder that Paul does write songs that are about two different things. Of course, yeah. Can we talk, though, real quick about uh, how heartbreaking the line, I can help you out, but I cannot help you in like little lamb i can put you out of your misery I know. but i can't heal you I know. like i could snap your neck oh yeah but i can't fix your i can't do anything about it yeah yeah exactly then i think he's like soothing himself he's like yeah totally you just got to go through it farmer jim that's right like sometimes yeah. babies die i think this is one of paul's most extraordinary works actually and i'll tell you why <laughs> Um, but what's really, really important about this song and crucial to note if we're going to discuss it is its timing, because this song was actually recorded on November 19th, 1970. Okay. And I don't mean the original demo. I mean, the actual recording, it was mixed and overdubbed two years later for the Red Rose Speedway album, but the actual recording was in November of 1970, at the same time John was recording Plastic Ono Band. So I think we can kind of look at this song as, as Paul's primal scream. Yeah. Because, you know, I think you can tell both from the song and his performance, which is just uncharacteristically despondent. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely devastated emotionally. And you can hear it. It yep. is authentic. Yeah. And of course, John was devastated at the time too. Anyone who's familiar with Plastic Ono Band knows that. But to me, what is such a, a striking contrast is the opposite forms that the same pain takes in their songwriting. Because mm. both of them are crying out. Both of them are wounded. But... John turns his pain into outward hostility and blame and expresses it with an aggressive music style, right? Yes. Like isolation, for example, isolation is angry and accusatory. I don't expect you to understand after you've caused so much pain, you know, bang, bang, bang on the piano, That's right? right? Yeah. Yes. Where Paul, on the other hand, takes the opposite like the actual opposite route he uses the most gentle imagery a lamb like literally a lamb <laughs> the yeah. synonymous with the, like gentle as a lamb right that's right newborn it's, lamb the music is romantic and lilting and what i find both tragic and artful about what he does is that he's singing about death right yeah this gentle little creature's death is a beautiful metaphor for the love between John and Paul that he feels slipping away and that he's mourning. 
and just like the lamb who he can't help he is also helpless to stop what's happening to him and john and you can hear how painful it is to him even take it a step further and say Paul is associating John in particular with the fragile baby lamb. I can help you out, but I cannot help you in. Isn't that a beautiful succinct summary of their impasse? Like, John, I love you enough to let you go and be free with Yoko, but that's the best I can do because I couldn't give you what you wanted from me. I can't help you in. Paul kind of articulated this in 1966, where he said, like, you know, if we're writing a song together, our, right. our minds will sort of blend and meld. And then we and then we come out with the same thing. But if we yep. had both written the song separately, they would be completely different. Yes. This is a beautiful example of that. Same pain, mm-hmm. same relationship, but it's just coming out so different. Like they're just expressing it so differently. Yeah. Um, As we discussed in detail in episode three, John's method of coping with the loss of their relationship was to convince himself that it wasn't real and that he no longer believed, you know, how are you going to be hurt over something you don't believe in, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. But it's much easier to be angry. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be in, in agony. Yeah. Yeah, everybody knows and everybody confirms that John was just like an open wound, like constant, constant pain. So like mm-hmm. yeah. he probably had no, felt like he had no other choice even, you know. Um, mm. But in this song, Paul's not just going through the pain and living the pain and feeling the pain. The amazing thing is that he still has the ability to say in the lyrics, we don't have to do this. You know, it doesn't have to be this way because in time we'll see that this is crazy. The (laughs) fact that, you know, the fact that he was able to say the years ahead will show how little we really know is just shockingly clear-minded and mature. Yeah given the situation like he already knows that they're going to look back with regret at what's happening at this time yeah paul really has moments of kind of amazing prescience i feel sometimes he's an oracle he has his moments he does yeah so also you know putting these songs in the proper sequence makes so much more sense out of them and you know again i think is crucial to understanding them. Little Lamb Dragonfly is written and recorded in 1970 during the first period of of real estrangement between John and Paul post-breakup, okay? And then shortly after Paul records Little Lamb Dragonfly, John uh, bursts back into the public with Plastic on a Band and Lennon Remembers and all the vitriol in that interview. How shocked and devastated would Paul have been by that after he's just written and sung this song? Like, of course he shelved it after hearing Plastic Ono Band. Yeah. Yeah. And Lennon remembers, right? Yeah. How how in the world would he be able to put it out at that point? 
after that, then is when he writes Dear Friend, which, as we just discussed, is wounded and sad, but also a bit angry and defensive. Yes. And then shortly after that, as things continue to deteriorate, comes too many people. And Ram, the rest of Ram, you know? So, like, if you follow the emotional trajectory of Little Lamb Dragonfly, Dear Friend, Too Many People, you can hear and completely understand Paul's slow burn of anger over that year. You know, I, I almost... I almost wish he hadn't put it out on Red Rose Speedway, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it's made it harder for people to follow the story of John and Paul. I mean, on the one hand, I'm I'm glad he didn't throw it away because well, I, I yeah. do think it's a great work. So I'm glad that sure. you know we have it. Yeah, but it's definitely worth it for sure. Yeah. Um, but I also think the circumstances of when he wrote this song are vital to the timeline. Yeah. As, as we discussed in episode one, this represents a period like late 72, early 73, when, when Paul is cleaning this song up to go on Red Rose Speedway. This is a time where John and Paul were becoming very close again and essentially making up. This is when uh, John apparently yelled i wish i was back with paul to yoko at that party so the fact that paul is willing to resurrect the song and share this very vulnerable window into his heart with the world and john at this time is significant but i think it says more about their closeness at that point in early 73 more than it speaks to Paul's current state of mind. I agree. The fact that he felt comfortable releasing it to me suggests that he had gained some distance and felt more secure. Right. But you can see why this would confuse people because it it gives the impression um, that Paul in 1973 was as desperately heartbroken as he was in 1970. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't because things weren't as desperate in 1973. (laughs) John and Paul were on the mend at that time. Right. But that makes perfect sense though. Like it a thousand percent comports with (laughs) Paul's character that he doesn't expose his most painful feelings until they're kind of over. Yeah. Until the crisis has passed. Yeah, until he feels safe to do that. And feels like he's strong enough to cope with any pushback that might happen. Like, I think Paul is the type of person that if he does open up and show his vulnerability in real time during a fragile state, if he then gets a negative reaction, I think it crushes him. Yeah. Look at how long it took him to reveal his post Beatles breakup depressive breakdown. He didn't. mention that at all until the early 80s well and he didn't go into any real detail about it until no probably the late 90s yeah he needs a good long stew on negative emotions before he's he'll share them so yeah it does say something that he released this song in 1973 but it's important to know that it was 
written and recorded in 1970. Similarly, you know, the inclusion of Look at Me on Plastic Ono Band distorts its meaning too. Yes. Because yes. on, on Plastic Ono Band, it's, it comes off like a generalized angst song, mm-hmm. but you hear the 1968 demo, which, which is heartfelt and fragile. Mm. And when you learn that the song was written in India, you know, it changes the meaning of the song. Phoebe, are you saying that context matters? (laughs) Believe it or not, I am saying that yet again. (laughs) (laughs) For the millionth time. So presumably John is Dragonfly, which is a beautiful image for John. Dazzling Quicksilver with a dangerous name, um, but (laughs) fragile in reality. Delicate and lively and colorful. I love that. Paul loves John so much. If Paul calls you anything that has wings in one of his songs. That's the ultimate affection. He loves you. That's right. Don't know why you hang around my door. I don't live here anymore. How heartbreaking is that? Like, as much Mm. as Paul, I think, is trying to reassure John. With this, I, there's a part of him that is probably saying, I'm a different person now. We can't go back. We can yeah. make it right, but it's never going to be the same. I don't live here anymore. Ugh. I mean, you know, putting it in the context of 1970, it makes me think of, you know, Paul asking John to let him out of the trap and John refusing, yeah. just like refusing to mm. comply. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, it's, you're rejecting me. You're pushing me away. You're not loving me anymore, but you also won't let me go. Yes. Mm. Which is fair. You know, like that's a terrible position for Paul too. Like, why are you keep, why are you trying to keep me when you don't want me? That's right. Yeah. That's awful. I mean, talk about feeling used. Oh my God. Yeah. And for me, it's just one of the most beautiful examples. Paul, Paul is able to put um, regret and longing into words and into his voice, I think is really stellar. In my heart, feel the pain. It's coming back again. Like we have all been there, right? Yeah. Where we have a chronic hurt and sometimes it's better than others. And then it comes back. Oh. And then he says, lonely nights. I don't think Paul is saying come on back and we can have a polyamorous relationship (laughs) yeah yeah like I I mean well here's the well okay if that's about John I can easily see a scenario where um you know Paul is up through the night restless true and you know linda's asleep and she's got to get up with the kids in the morning and sure paul's sitting there with his guitar well and also because may says in her book that john was a night writer it does seem like based on the stories that john and paul tended to be morning writers although maybe that's only at like uh in london like weybridge cavendish yeah when they live apart because on tour they probably were writing in the at night in the hotel you know where they'd be having a fucking seven day slumber party so they'd be together all the time absolutely including at night and we know that paul you know is really fixated on 
um, the times when he and John would share a bed. Like he, that's really an important memory for him. So that's what kind of makes me think, well, maybe Paul's the homo romantic one. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I think they, I definitely think they both are. If insomnia is a thing that Paul gets when he's anxious, surely John knows about that. Oh, so he would Jesus. understand like lonely, you know, I'm awake all night. You know what that means. You know what I'm like. Oh, boy. I'm, alo- I'm up at night thinking about you. Um, well, that adds I, the layer to how do you sleep? Ooh. Oh, man, you threw me it off does, with that. Meaning like it doesn't really fit with it kind of doesn't right i've never thought it did yeah i mean obviously there's the surface of like you know people who are evil and bad but if they can't if, sleep because of their if, conscience if the song is exactly so if if a song is called how do you sleep you would expect it to be like a litany of terrible actions that they've done right you're a morally bankrupt monster you it wouldn't be like you're lame it's like those are two totally different vibes i mean that's true something about that phrase is his way of getting under paul's skin Mm -hmm. and like Like, i know i know this will keep you up at night you know i don't know maybe it's just that he that he knows that um paul has uh like nagging intrusive thoughts yeah Uh like intrusive thoughts yeah he told which he totally does yeah so maybe that's John's way of just fucking with him. Maybe. Yeah, I could totally see that. But to go back to the, the like lonely nights, I also feel like maybe Paul is saying by using those not explicitly sexual, but sort of romantically adjacent language yeah, sure. that maybe he's trying to communicate to John, like, I didn't mean to imply that I was grossed out. I still want to be close to you. I wasn't, I'm not disgusted and I'm really sorry if I made you feel that way. That is not, that was not my intention. Well, and Best Friend from 1972, that song uses similar imagery, like dreaming about you, wake up screaming about you, you know, very intimate. Yeah, pretty baby. He calls him pretty baby. Like, you know. Yeah, for sure. Very, very warm. It evokes sleeping, sleeping together. Yep. Yes. My instinct on both of them is that Paul would never use words like that if he was even slightly afraid Mm. that John would be repulsed or scared off by them. True. You know? Like, if he's trying to coax John back... You'd have to assume that he's going to go for what would reassure John. Yes. So if he's yeah. feeling in any way, like, like he has feelings that John doesn't have, he would never do that. Would never reveal them. Yeah. He would, he would go no homo. Exactly. Yeah. Which right. he does not do here. <laughs> yes. So I have to, I'd lean towards, towards your diagnosis there (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, I still like I still love you in the way that I did when we would share a bed and we're close and would hug and cuddle and like none of that has changed I regret none of that yes yes exactly pretty baby and nothing about that has changed like I don't that's right I don't think of you differently now correct you know I you're still my pretty baby 
Yeah. <laughs> Among fans, Let Me Roll It is one of the more popular candidates for songs written to John. For multiple reasons, the echo on the vocal, which John constantly used in his solo career, the guitar maybe sounds a bit like cold turkey. And in the lyrics, there's definitely a sense of distance between the singer and the addressee, Mm, which doesn't really make it this the best fit for a song to Linda. True. So So for all those reasons, let me roll it is commonly assumed to be written for john but paul has actually commented on this very thing and denied it in 2010 he told clash magazine that let me roll it wasn't to john it was just in the style that we did with the beatles that john was particularly known for it was really actually the use of the echo it was one of those you're not going to use echo just because john used it i don't think so To tell you the truth, that was more about rolling a joint. That was the double meaning there. Let me roll it to you. That was more in the back of my mind than anything else. Dear friend, that was very much let's be friends to John. (laughs) Let's be friends. (laughs) (laughs) I love that he says, he doesn't even say let's be friends again. He just says, let's be friends to John. (laughs) 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 Like it's a new concept. That's right. Hey, John, uh, Lennon, is it? <laughs> uh, hey, buddy, so... now that we're no longer songwriting partners, would you care to be friends? <laughs> We've never tried that before. Let's explore that interesting angle. That fascinating new angle to our relationship. Oh, dear. Uh, then along came Paul's lyrics book, <laughs> in which Paul now says, John loved this tape echo and used it more than any of us, so it became a signature sound on his solo records. I'm acknowledging that by using it here. I remember first singing Let Me Roll It and thinking, yeah, this is very like a John song. It's in John's area of vocalization, needless to say, but the most Lennon-esque thing is the echo. In terms of what is being communicated in the song Let Me Roll It, I've always heard it as a sultry languorous very sexy song super smooth and cocky like he knows he's gonna give this person a real good time (laughs) and he's gonna tell them all about it (laughs) ahead of time um yes and i thought that was the universal experience with this song (laughs) (laughs) right um but no uh then along came paul's lyrics book and here's what he has to say The single most significant element in this song is not the echo. It's not the vocalization. It's not the lyrics. It's the guitar riff. A good guitar riff is of rare beauty. This one is so dramatic that people in the audience gasp when they hear it because it stops so abruptly. It feels like everything freezes. Time freezes. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, we know, Paul. (laughs) Isn't that the point? (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Let me roll it is a love song at its heart. The other erotic sense of rolling that is part and parcel of rock and roll is also very much a part of it. Thank you, sir, for not being too graphic. (laughs) (laughs) The image of my heart is like a wheel, so let me roll it to you is one that anyone can connect with. 
Anyone can understand how exposed you feel when you offer your heart to or reveal your affections for another person. It's very difficult. The hesitation we feel in that situation of wanting to reach out but being reluctant to be completely open is made physical in the abrupt starting and stopping of the riff. The constant cutting short of the momentum of the song mimes the subject matter. We all relate to that situation. A year or two back, I saw a musical called Be More Chill by mm-hmm. Joe Iconis and Joe Tracks about a nerdy boy who can't say he loves someone. He has a speech impediment, a nervous stammer. Let Me Roll It is a sort of long, drawn-out stammer. Not the way I hear it. That's really wild, too, because what, why is he mentioning a musical he saw two years ago? Well, I mean, who even knows? I'm like, not even, that's not even on my radar of weirdness for this. <laughs> like, wh- whatever, whatever. But like, wh- did you need to give a concrete example of what a stammer um, is? Like, is that how you, you <laughs> like, we know maybe. what a stammer is. We know what that means. We know what a speech impediment is. And you can't possibly have, have never heard of a stammer until that's right. Ago. So that's why, right. what does that have to do with anything? Are I you didn't. just randomly sharing? Like, is your brain just drifting into non sequiturs? Like what? Bleep, bloop, bleep, bloop. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know. Well, what's weird to me. Okay. So here's, here's what it boils down to. And then I'll also say a lot more, but <laughs> <laughs> so he's talking about the riff, right? Yeah, He's talking about, oh, people gasp when they hear it. Oh, it's so powerful and amazing. So it's like, well, yeah, Paul, it's like the sex of the song. But then he's also like, but actually the riff is like a stammer. Okay, so I think if I'm if I may and I far be it from me to mansplain Paul's songs to him. I'm not trying to do that. However, so I think what he's saying, I think he's conflating two things. Okay. The, the boy who can't say I love you and the stammer, that's the sentiment in the lyrics, right? Can't yeah, tell you how the- I feel. Yeah. Paul himself, as we know, as we've discussed before, has a phobia of saying I love you. Yes. Basically. Um, yes. He's talked about it many times in many different contexts in relation to many different people. Like it yes. is just, a, it's just his personal problem. Okay. Um <laughs> And I think what he's saying here is that it's easier for him to show his feelings with sex than it is with words. Yes. But the song is conveying sex. Yes. I think we are correct in that assessment. And I think that that is actually what Paul is doing. Like he, he describes the the rolling mm-hmm. of his hips into right. thrusting into whoever he's loving or whatever um, exactly as his heart similar thing like he's rolling the heart and just rolling yeah. his hips and yep. whatever and the joint <clears throat> all of those things and the joint as well because that helps things too <laughs> why not it does and then he's also addressing uh what's in his lyrics as the the stammer so i think the thrust of the lyrics is kind of a long drawn out emotional stammer mm. But the music sort of more representing the physical act of loving a person. <laughs> no, I like that. I think that's great. I mean, when, when he's saying the hesitation 
we feel in that situation of wanting to reach out but being reluctant to be completely open is made physical mm-hmm. the abrupt starting and stopping of the riff uh, he could be talking about the <clears throat> the the um the intense emotions that can that can occur during sex maybe yeah so that you know each <laughs> each um sorry <laughs> i'm trying my best here each sort of you know uh thrust thrust so that yeah exactly so like each thrust is evoking the emotions that are sort of sort of conflicting because he wants to be vulnerable and reveal his feelings but he also is um but it's also scary yes so that that all kind of makes sense it just the way that he says it sounds weirder I think he just says things weird sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. But okay. So to bring it, to rein it back in and break it down in terms of what does this tell us about pizza and fairy tales? According to 2010, Paul, this song is not to John. But 2020, Paul says John was at least on his mind when he wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. And even though the song sounds smooth and languid, that actually in Paul's mind is also expressing a high degree of reluctance and nervousness. And he never explicitly says the song is for Linda, which even though Paul struggles to express love, as we've said to literally everyone always in his life forever, it's a big problem. It still feels like it would be a bit much to have such huge nervousness about saying it yeah. in a song to his wife of five years. I, I agree. I agree. I mean, if it's about smoking weed and fucking, then yeah, it could be about Linda, but yeah, um, very plausibly. But if it's about not being able to, exp- like, you're like you're just not that nervous with your wife of five years, right? I, yeah, but like it doesn't have to be about Linda because he's he's had a lot of relationships in his life and he's had sex with like hundreds and hundreds, hundreds. of people. Yes. So he has a lot of sexual experience to draw from. <laughs> in fairness right it's not like this one woman in his life you know he's had a rich life so it could be on any experience is what i'm saying Mm. and he's written a million songs too is the other thing so if you're not writing the same song over and over again every time then you're obviously you're drawing from all kinds of different experiences Mm. that you've had even ones that might be far in the past you know what i mean or your fantasies or whatever you know like that's true so I feel like it's a little, a little unimaginative on our part to assume yes. that we know what he, like he could only be writing about three things in his life. Like we know his fucking life, you know? <laughs> That's very true. That's like, very true. Yeah. Like, like who knows? So um, there is that, but I do think, I think the part for sure that, that where John comes in is, I mean, I would take the line I can't tell you how I feel. My heart is like a wheel, like sort of transparently. I think you could apply that to John. Yes. Because we know he can't tell John how he feels. And I think it's very sweet. Yeah. Of him to say like, "Ah, John, I know I'm sorry. Here you go. Let's get high. Right. And, and rock out. Like, because I definitely think in terms of expressing love, his comfort zone would be sex or music. Or music. Yeah. Well, and obviously John thought it was for him, at least in part, because he responds with beef jerky, 
which yes. you can find on YouTube, exactly copies that awesome guitar riff. And, and of course, beef right. jerky seems like a funny dick joke in exactly. response to you gave me love it in the palm of my hand, which sounds obviously like a dick joke too. So <laughs> Exactly. Um, so if that's a little, uh, you know, back and forth, so to speak. Parry and thrust. Yeah, parry and thrust. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Paul sings, you gave me love in the palm of my hand. John responds with beef jerky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't need that much imagination to figure really out what don't. that is for. Yeah. So you really don't. Yeah. And it's very lighthearted. <laughs> exactly. It's romantic, but it also is funny. Yes and affectionate and warm uh, yes exactly mm-hmm. but yes if paul managed to move the conversation in that direction then congratulations paul <laughs> because that's yes. a, that is a nice uh that's a nice detour from when you guys were both like yes about to die or kill a, each other exactly so if it's just like you know mutual dick times <laughs> then this is like he's managed to bring it back around to like that was fun see that's right nothing nothing sad there's nothing to be sad about like that was fun that was a good time that's right yeah which is nice but again sort of takes it back into the pizza and fairy tales realm Mm -hmm. like if paul managed to move the conversation in that direction then congratulations because (laughs) um you guys were both like dying your worlds were just like fucking ending two years ago and like if you brought it back to like hey it's all good it's funny yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. see it's nothing to be sad about those were the good times sure (laughs) totally and i think i think sometimes john was really good with that but then other times he hated it and felt it was dismissive well yeah i mean this is the man who in India wrote a song pleading with his love to look at me and asked, who are we? Nobody else can see just you and me. So yeah, it's pretty obvious that John needed, if not a label, then at least some sort of verbal acknowledgement or clarification. Yes. John Whereas, needs to be validated. Yes. Which is fair. Oh, God. Yes. Which is fair. Yeah. Paul, on the other hand. Mr. I hate to be pigeonholed. (laughs) His most number one hated thing. Yes. As soon as he thinks someone's put him in a box, he's like, fuck that. Yeah, exactly. That's the last thing. he. Give me a box cutter. Yeah. For our purposes with this series, like there's a reason we started in 72 Mm. and 73, because that's when it starts to get more lighthearted. And the songs are more friendly and they're mm-hmm. less desperate and tragic. Tra- exactly. More reassuring. Like I know, I know, and, and no words are both like, yeah, I love you. We can get past this. Yeah. And then let me roll it in beef jerky. Those you'd have to qualify those as sort of the most lighthearted, friendly, sanguine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then let that sort of leads into more you know, on John's end starts, he starts veering back into more romantic stuff. I mean, number nine dream, like, I don't think anybody would categorize it as a love song, but I certainly would consider it romantic. And then bless you, 
which I think is mostly intended for Yoko or inspired by Agree. Yoko or dedicated yeah. to Yoko. Um, mm-hmm. But if there's a verse in there that's to Paul, which seems reasonable since, you know, he says love is strange and, you know, he's a, he's evoking a, a song title of Paul's and <laughs> he's again using that we spread our wings. John loves to reference wings starting in the mid 70s throughout the mid and late 70s where he has no history of doing that in his (laughs) songwriting ever right yeah is there any Beatles song where he's mentioned wings it's not his motif of course it's not it's Paul's and it's and it's synonymous with Paul and has been since the beginning of time so it's yeah to me that's always a a reference to Paul like a pretty obvious Mm -hmm. reference to Paul yeah like I do think that you know, John um, holds Yoko and Paul in his left and right hand, so to speak, you know? Yeah. So to me, it, there, there's nothing, there's nothing mm-hmm. nonsensical about him writing a song, a love song about his mystical destiny with both of them. Correct. Yeah. Especially since, and we made this point in another episode, but he calls Paul his estranged fiance on stage in front of his estranged wife. So yeah. it's not absurd to see a song that's romantic and think, well, maybe this is more for Paul than for Yoko because John talks right. about Paul in romantic terms all the time. Outside Absolutely. of songs. Absolutely. Why wouldn't he do it inside of songs? If he, if that's where he and Paul communicate best, especially John proclaiming, I believe, sounds like a direct apology for, I don't believe in Beatles, in God, which uh, we discussed earlier as being very hurtful to Paul. And um, there are more allusions to the song God in Number Nine Dream. Uh, More I cannot say, and what more can I say? Whatever gets you through the night might also be directed at Paul. Um, Trust me, darling, listen, hold me, I won't do you no harm. Yeah. Darling, I won't do you no harm. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What what else? What else do we need to say? Yeah, Felicity says whatever gets you through the night after writing. How do you sleep? So there's that sort of exactly. Anyway, all of those John songs from 1974 are romantic and hopeful, and that seems to be where the mood is for them. And let me roll it fits in with this too. Hmm. Honestly, I think that is kind of their comfort zone. That <laughs> sort of warm and sexy yet undefined <laughs> cocoon, yeah. you know, like mm. where their relationship existed for most of the time they were together. Mm. Yes, it's holding pattern. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it makes complete sense to me that this is when they started seriously thinking about writing together again. This point yep. at the end of, of 74. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's also a danger zone because getting lured back into that comfort zone might represent to John a situation that, you know, ultimately ended up causing him a lot of pain. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, what's going to be different this time? Yeah, this comfort zone could easily turn into a danger zone and then a disaster zone. Yeah. Here's what Paul has to say about our next song, Venus and Mars. 
It was written in 1974, and in those days, and to some degree today, a lot of people who were into concerts were also into alternative thinking. They'd want to know what your <laughs> sign was, and they'd place some relevance on that. I was never like that. As far as I was mm -hmm. concerned, Venus and Mars were just two random planets. But when we released the record, I realized they're also characters, people, as well as planets. So I was really throwing all of these ideas of the planets and the stars and the live show, all of these period words into this one song, which I don't perform a lot because of the embarrassment factor. But I've oh. also met people who love this song, so I've kind of learned to shut up about it. I really like Venus and Mars and Rock Show. And I, I like the Venus and Mars reprise. Yeah. I, it's beautiful. I mean, that, that <sighs> music is really beautiful too. I also really enjoy that he's putting him in, um, he's putting himself in the role of an audience member as opposed to a performer. Mm. I love that. I love that yeah. about Paul. And it's not him being, you know, a fakey man of the people type thing. He, he <sighs> loves going to concerts. He yeah. loves other artists. Venus and Mars, though, I I still have to think that that's... I still think it's about John. I don't care what he says. Well, it might be. A good friend of mine follows the stars. John's superstitious stuff was the reason that was um, the reason that he decided not to go to New Orleans, as far as Paul was probably concerned. I mean, we don't know exactly when it was written. Like, it could have been pre or That's post, true. you know... Yeah, or he had the melody and changed, then changed the words. It yeah. just fits so perfectly. I just can't well, help it. Well, a good friend of mine follows the stars. I always picture um, a young girl, like if somebody in a wing at the wing show, like a very 70s girl hmm. drinking like wine coolers, you know, strawberry mm -hmm. wine. And she's saying... With a headband. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like well, she's saying one of my friends, a good friend of mine follows the stars. Like, I don't even hear those words as coming from paul the narrator interesting interesting just my take but but it's very easy to it's very easy to read that as like if paul has a good friend who follows the stars we probably know who that is i mean yeah and then he's yeah. saying come away on a strange vacation yeah that's true uh you know i i can't help it i love how he brings aliens into it too which is another sort of 70s hot button yeah totally John Lennon saw the UFO in 1975. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's true, though. He did. Yep. <laughs> yeah, red light, green light, strawberry wine. Well, I think red light, green light, to me, makes me think of airplane. Oh, yeah. Or a boat. So that makes me think of, like, Paul sitting, watching the airport in the dark. Him <laughs> smoking uh, out in the grass looking up at the sky yes yeah maybe he doesn't think in words as much as other yeah. people like maybe he has some synesthesia yeah like when he you know draws pictures and stuff or when he in the throes of his like sort of meltdown grief period for linda or no it was at her yeah at her memorial he says <laughs> talks about that he always saw her as a big orange diamond wow and that obviously meant a lot to him but like that you know makes no wow. sense wow yeah. yeah or another <laughs> in the vein of his persistent acid flashback the blue hole with the 
holding the meaning of life that he knows exactly what size it is because that's <laughs> yeah, right. a crucial detail but I think it might be to him like he thinks in shapes and colors so here's another one that I love is when he's <laughs> when he's talking about that time that Linda dressed him down on the street in New York yeah yeah <laughs> and like got really mad at him and he's talking about it and about how it you know he Fell he in liked love with it her a million times. right yeah <laughs> yeah but he, he says that she went you know that she was so angry that she went red and then he qualifies it he's like not a beetroot red more a light strawberry oh my god <laughs> yeah. yeah he thinks in music and sounds and colors and shapes more than words wow this is my my little theory anyway my pet theory I love it. I also <laughs> discovered afterward that they were people. <laughs> yeah. Well, How non-linear is his brain? Paul, Paul like builds a 45 story tower with like all kinds of little rooms in it. And then he's like, yeah, it's a pretty good building. Actually. I realized that the gymnasium actually helps people exercise. <laughs> like, yeah, Paul, isn't that why you put it in there? <laughs> you know? not, isn't that by design? I don't I really think he goes, uh, I think he just switches off part of his brain and just and just goes, goes on instinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then he just steps back afterwards and goes, hey, I'm pretty oh, good yeah. at this. Paul's <laughs> already. But it's funny that that comes off to a lot of people as if he is stupid or like yeah. as if he doesn't as if it is like it's vacant or something like the like those things aren't there it's like what are you talking about like it's clearly there just because he didn't do it on purpose doesn't mean he didn't do it well yeah that's something i find very frustrating right you know that's a wild take to me in all literary criticism too a good artist's work is rich enough to to justify many different interpretations even if they didn't intend every single one they never do they never who do. does that no one but if you're an excellent artist your work will definitely will again will be rich enough to sustain conversation and analysis like sometimes i feel like that that's some like false modesty that he's trying to draw attention to the fact that wasn't isn't this a smart design choice while not actually taking the credit for it being a choice mm. do you know what i mean and then other times i'm just like no he's just his brain is just that weird and that compartmentalized well you know what people are weird and great artists are almost always weird weird yeah it's so very true the simplest and most likely explanation is that he's weird yeah and but doesn't want to lean into that on main for some reason which is also weird which is well it's it's all part and parcel of the weirdness but but he does a ton of masking i mean that's why people think he's fake you Mm -hmm. know like that's why that's dogged him his whole life because he's clearly masking something yeah maybe just that he's not you know normal yeah in which case like i feel terrible because people have been openly mocking his ticks and idiosyncrasies 
and everything about the unusual ways he expresses himself for decades and if that is even partially born out of being neurodivergent yes yeah i think uh, he is i feel like that's a pretty straightforward thing to say about like the most prolific songwriter of the century Hmm. yeah this should not be a surprise it shouldn't yeah and to your point about masking paul could have been very very different since birth but because he wants to please and was very much raised to behave well and to put on a respectable front for the neighbors which is a phrase that mike used and because he has the specific gifts of being observant of having an excellent memory of being a good mimic it would make sense that he would would be able to mask it really well yeah for a long time until he got famous and went under a magnifying glass for the rest of his life but yeah and but and in the beatles there were three other guys to hand off to all the time oh yeah who could compensate for oh yeah but when do, when do the cracks start to show when do we start realizing that paul's not normal you know it's like when the band breaks up and then yeah he realizes like i can't do, you know he's terrified i don't want to go out there mm-hmm. by myself that's right yeah and I so didn't, i didn't even enjoy doing publicity when i was with my best friends now and, i have to do it by myself seriously and i had something to Gross. offer at that time i could i could right. do uh politeness because i'm really I good at my niche yes right. <laughs> and keeping track of the questions and remembering names yeah those yeah, are my strengths keeping, that's right and then in the 70s that's not what anybody wants anymore they want yeah. you to be real and he's like excuse me no <sighs> i didn't sign up for that shit no I signed up to give you sound bites and to be polite and to answer your questions mm-hmm. about music. Yeah, and to keep my crazy bandmates on the rails. Yeah, I'm not revealing my innermost thoughts to you. Get the fuck out of here. I don't even do that with myself. <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted to know my innermost thoughts, I'd pick up a paintbrush or a guitar or something. I wouldn't sit down and talk to a rock magazine. Fuck off. i mean again we can't diagnose him or whatever but to suggest that a composer who is this prolific Mm -hmm. and this versatile across Mm. many different genres of music suggesting that he is not neurotypical i don't think should be controversial you know like we generally refer to these people as geniuses Mm -hmm. and that term has become kind of problematic because it's you know it's politicized and it's been used for all kinds of weird shit white supremacy and you know like all kinds of fucked up things so it's got baggage it does and so that's fine if we want to throw that term in the garbage i'm fine with it we don't have to call him a genius but like what the fuck is genius other than identifying people who are extraordinary and and unusual Hmm. and and Mm -hmm. sort of not typical yes he's all those things one two three one two three
don't think I've ever read any comments from Paul about Call Me Back Again. Is it in the book? No. Although, as you and I have discussed, it should be, if just for his outrageously hot live performances. Yes, (laughs) the performance far outweighs the composition. It's it's true. (laughs) Uh, My favorite is, I guess it's Bootleg. I found it on YouTube. Live in Seattle, 1976. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we used it in episode four of this series. I like the good old Wings Over America live version. The album version is nothing compared to those live versions. Why does it even exist? Yeah. Why does it exist? That's a great question. I don't know. Like, the point of that song is to be performed live, is, you know. Absolutely. It was premature to put it on the album. So, when I was a little baby boy. Okay. It's very cute. Like, this was written in New Orleans, and you can definitely yeah. tell. And he's putting mm-hmm. on his Fats Domino a little bit. You That's know. right. Yep, he's, <laughs> he's exactly. Jelly Roll Morton here, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's he's taken a genre. <laughs> when, yeah. I, when I was a little baby boy, that's cute. <laughs> so let's talk about the song. Call me back again. Okay, kind of obvious and, why why we think it would yeah. be directed at John. Paul's making the calls in this era. John, admittedly, does not return phone calls <laughs> because he's self-involved, doesn't like phones, and is paranoid. And there isn't anyone on earth who ever got a phone call from him who wasn't yes. a relative, probably, or a very old friend. Exactly. Even in the Beatles days, if they didn't call me, call I me. didn't come. I didn't come. <laughs> so high maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> so call me back again. Is this evidence for the theory that Paul was desperate, whereas John was lukewarm during the 70s, as discussed in our first episode? yeah i mean i was going to refer back to the first episode as well because to me this is more like the mick jagger situation um Uh (laughs) you know i mean he's basically saying call me back dude pick up the phone you moron yeah you know like we were discussing i've chased you a bit and i don't mind doing that and that's fine Mm -hmm. and i can do it but you have got to follow through and reciprocate or i'm sure. gonna stop chasing you after a while sure i'm not gonna do this forever yeah right yeah that's that's kind of more how i take it again mm-hmm. i you know i'm seeing it through a different lens i see it more through like that mick jagger lens or whatever right so um <laughs> to me it's not weird or desperate for paul to say call me back again mm-hmm. and also you know this song the song isn't desperate so like the song is upbeat and sort of uplifting and and humorous yeah exactly and paul's having a blast singing yeah it. no so kidding it's not like he's crying about it he's he's <laughs> yeah i mean but to play devil's advocate i mean you could interpret it as being begging because he says it over and over and over and over again um absolutely uh, let me let me put it this way like if, okay if my preconception is already that Paul is desperate and John is lukewarm, yes. this mm-hmm. slots very nicely into that preconception. Sure. So sure. Yeah. yeah. You can take it that way. And I, like, whatever, I'm not trying to yuck anybody's yum. If that, if, if you like that story, like if it, if it makes you Mormon special inside, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you like desperate, horny Paul and, cold aloof john Mm -hmm. like if that's your jam then go for it you can feel that way i don't whatever but i 
I just don't think that that's the real situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yes, to your point, yeah, that's a totally reasonable read. It just kind of depends on what your vantage point is, I guess. Yeah. So is there anything about the rest of the lyrics or about Paul's performance or any of his other choices around the song that shed light on what he is trying to communicate to John beyond, please pick up a phone. So yeah, these lyrics do jibe with John's account in 1980 of how He's a phone receiver, not a phone mm-hmm. giver or whatever, <laughs> however you want to say. Yeah. He's not a, a call maker. He's a, a call receiver. Yes. So that tracks with this song. And also just the, again, you know, Paul is taking poetic license and he's kind of doing a character here. Uh-huh. Um, but he says, since I was a little baby boy, you know, <laughs> I used to yeah. call your house every night, and yeah. whatever. It does kind of also fit with you know paul being the one to call john's house right since he uh-huh. was 15 or whatever right um i mean it again it sounds kind of desperate and unrequited for him to say um i i i never 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 no 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 heard you calling right. me back yeah um however if you think about it there's really no other move in the song like that's the correct place to go in the song you can't exactly for the for the torch song genre that he's appropriating here yeah right he can't be like and sometimes you called me it wouldn't work as a song right exactly it's not gonna pack that punch so um yeah if you take that literally then it's like i do everything and like you never give me anything and please you know Mm -hmm. but again that's not really the vibe to me he is kind of showing off his skills that's the other thing that I kind of wonder if it's if it's a message to John maybe Mm. part of it is like look what you are missing look how much fun we could be having singing together he's right although if I heard that I'd be like I'm not getting on stage with you you gotta be fucking crazy (laughs) that's exactly a lot of the time I see things more easily from Paul's point of view but if you're John and you have uh long bouts of very low energy yeah that is not enticing right it makes you feel worse really yeah it's like oh i could never i cannot keep up with this insane animal you know john after the breakup talks a lot about paul's energy and about the energy that they had i know together so i'm sure that he misses it and i'm sure he knows that if they did get together that chemistry would reappear but on the other hand, John is in his 30s now, his mid-30s. He's not 22. And obviously that had zero effect on Paul's energy because he's an alien. And specifically in John's case, his voice wouldn't have been in top form because he, he wasn't in practice. So again, I think Paul is maybe not super aware that when he kind of struts and shows off and like does a yeah a crazy bird mating dance to john <laughs> he's kind of scaring him into like, a corner yes, yes. <laughs> exactly it's true he's in full peacock mode here <laughs> yes 100 100%. 100%.
Um, I did find a quote recently on Tumblr. It's an interview with John from November 1973, where he's being asked about the continuing Apple litigation. And he says, oh, I speak to Paul on the phone. And someone told me that we were only a decimal point from settling everything. <laughs> and then he adds, but I wish he would just send me a letter now and then. With all the legal stuff, we'll be tied together for a long time to come. <laughs> what? He wants a letter? But it's just kind of funny because he's like, oh, you, you know, we're tied. We're tied legally. We're tied on paper. I talk to Paul on the phones. People talk to me about Paul. But I wish he would write me a letter, too. You know, I want you to say the things that you only say to me in letters. Because... Because some, a lot of people, there are things you can write down and send to someone that you can't say. Well, we know for, we know for a fact, we've just discussed it, that like, he can't say, I love you or whatever, tender things mm -hmm. True. with his mouth hole. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so yeah. can he write them on paper? Maybe. I would Maybe. imagine, of course, that would be easier. If he can sing them, he can write them on a piece of paper. True. Well, because he had, because he said he had those, he has those two letters from John, but he'll never share them because they're too personal. Yeah. So maybe that's where the, that's where they got the most personal was in letters. It, yeah. That was sort of a, a a known and done thing between them. Yeah. In which case, it makes this comment from John really sweet. Maybe one of the really personal letters is from 1972, and and John's Ooh. still waiting on that reply. Oh, ouch. I mean, we don't, uh, you know, obviously we don't fucking know. We're just making we have no idea. Yeah. And, yeah. and tied together for a long time to come is, is kind of sad in light of what we discussed in I know. episode two. It's the only place we're tied now. Well, tied together for a long time to come. And it's like, oh, not really. Yeah. It's like I two mean, more years. Well. I mean, they're tied together forever. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. For the rest of human history yeah exactly and paul's made peace with that maybe that's oh, yeah. why he doesn't give a fuck maybe that's why he's like maybe. i'll talk about john i don't care i mean what what's the yeah i i'm not gonna get away from him true so i might as well try to put my version out there that's true because sometimes um i get like this weird double vision feeling because i'm like oh paul you're so frustrating why are you why are you making things so difficult for yourself mm -hmm. yeah and I'm like, you know what? He's proven over time that he is good at playing the long game. That's absolutely true. Maybe this will all make sense in 50 years and we can all go, ow! Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, we are turning to the lyrics book for an excerpt. John always had a lot of that bluster, though. It was his shield against life. We have an argument about something and he'd say particularly caustic, then I'd be a bit wounded. Then he'd pull down his glasses. Oh, Jesus Christ. Appear at me and say, it's only me, Paul. That was that was John. It's only me. Oh, all right. You've just gone and blustered. And that was somebody else, was it? <laughs> 
Yes, drag yeah. him. People who say that, that's not the real me. Mm. That's, that's bullshit. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> yes, it, it is the real you. I hate the, you know what I'm like thing. It was his shield talking. He'd say, my dad left home when I was three and my mom got run over and killed by an off-duty policeman outside the house. He never said that. And my he uncle never said George that. died. Yeah, I'm bitter. He told, <laughs> he told well, me once. He did. Maybe he did. Who to knows? Paul? I don't know. He told me once he thought he was a curse on the male line of the family because his dad had run away. And then he went to live with his aunt Mimi and Uncle George. Then George, who he really liked, died. His mom was run over after she'd visited him while walking to the bus stop down where he lived he idolized her just having to accommodate all that would make you want to put up a few defenses the point is that most people don't tend to show their emotions unless they are in private but deep down people are emotional and all i'm really saying in this song is love isn't silly at all so you know what i honestly have kind of a different take from this song reading that um because at first I was like, Paul, why are you talking about John's upbringing again? Like enough. We know all again. about it. Like what, what, why are you telling us this for the 55th fucking time? But reading that in context of this song and how he's pushing back on negativity and saying mm-hmm. like, stop being a fucking blustery macho posturing asshole like just enjoy love and just enjoy life and it's okay to like things and Um, give it its due respect in the context of how he's telling this story it sounds more like he's telling john to do those things so how is that different from how you saw it before so my initial read without all this stupid stuff that (laughs) i know about Lennon and McCartney that normal people don't know as just an audience member somebody listening to the song I just take it as pretty much what he's saying which is just like embrace love embrace good feelings doesn't really change my impression of the song but Mm -hmm. um considering that apparently John told Bob Gruen that he thinks this song is about him or that he thinks specifically the I love you parts are to him. Then I started to think of it like, oh, well, if John thinks this is a message to him from Paul, and if like, uh-huh. why would the I love you part be to John? If if the theme of the song is like, fuck off, then why would he be turning around and singing I love you to John? Like that didn't really make any sense to me. So I, I've never thought that the I love you was for John. I have never thought that either, but John thinks it is. Oh, right. Well, of course he does. I mean, on the one hand, you're like, of course he does because John's, you know, John thinks every yeah. song is yeah. is to him. But right. um, okay, so if we're going to entertain that, then we have to. So what? So what would this interpretation of this song be from John's point of view? Oh, hmm. you know what I mean. And then you start looking a little bit deeper into the song where you know when paul breaks it down and he's talking about linda and like explaining that he can't explain yeah yeah he can't explain but it's plain to him and that she Mm -hmm. gave it all she gave it all to me and what's wrong with that oh if that's toward john specifically if he's specifically Mm -hmm. talking to john then it seems like that he's yet again explaining his love for linda and why he chose to be with her yeah 
I mean, I don't know that it, again. That if it feels like we're in crazy town. Well, but so, we're trying to see it through John's eyes. If this is his read, well, I mean, either it's based in it's based in something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what would make him think that? You know, you're asking why would John think that I love you is worth for him? That I couldn't. I honestly couldn't tell you. Maybe if their dynamic at this point is Paul is trying to um, make up for hurting John, trying to say love isn't a lie. My love for you is real. You know, again, this isn't my interpretation of the song at all. Like I would never read this as a a message to John. It just, yeah, but John did. So we kind of have to talk about it. Well, that's it. Yeah. John did. So if it is, if that is true, then it, it, Mm -hmm. I would assume it would be based not just on the, I love you parts, but like the whole Mm -hmm. message of Mm -hmm. the song would be right. Yeah. Which he, which is justified as Paul is saying in the lyrics book that, that exactly. there was criticism of his love of songs including from john so john was on paul's mind well and then he goes into as we said what seems like a non-related tangent about how john had a shield oh yeah you know what i mean but then mm-hmm. deep down he was like he took the glasses down and said it's only me i love you by the way the other part that he's right omitting that he's not fessing up to in this in this book whatever okay paul yeah which that makes makes more sense right if we're talking about that little phrase i love you the most (laughs) true like the the most terrifying three words paul's (laughs) life the (laughs) pac-man chasing him Maybe he's telling himself a little bit in this song. Stop being so weird about the L word. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Well, like, probably therapeutic for him to sing it. I mean, if he can sing it, but oh, he can't completely. say it. And I think that's been his pattern since childhood. Yep. I don't know if it's primarily because he's naturally musical. And so that's how that was always going to be how his emotions were best expressed because he's an artist fundamentally or if it was something that just really got wound up tight in him by the whole the the way that his mother's death was handled he literally could not say it out loud yeah so he turned to music as he said many many times and wrote things like i lost my little girl and suicide and the and the (laughs) sweet (laughs) little bit of a song um that he got laughed at for by his relatives at 14 he was just 14 the springtime of life (laughs) yeah but even in may clouds can be gray or something like that (laughs) oh oh i know i mean that's definitely dysfunctional but i feel like it's a beautiful dysfunction (laughs) it kind of is i know right yeah he gets to be a disaster zone sometimes and also like if he says one more time that he had an idyllic childhood and john had a traumatic childhood it's like the more he says that the more of a red flag it is to me right yep he is hardcore projecting yes i really feel like he is it's like he's using john's traumatic childhood as a as proxy a, uh-huh. yes yeah vicarious yeah it's like he vent can- about 
childhood pain in general. Yes, that he can't yeah. say. Well, and also, I'm not saying this to spread rumors or conspiracy theories or whatever, but like really bad shit happens to kids that, you know, we wouldn't know about. He could have gone through any number of traumas. Yep. That would never be known or discussed exactly last of all by him yeah right exactly that maybe it's taken him 70 years to uncover or maybe he still hasn't or who knows if if horrible things happened to paul when he was a youngster it would not be ever talked about or or dealt with at all it would just be shoved down we wouldn't know anything about it i mean how many times has he mentioned like his pervy teachers right right perverts i know i i am right there with you he calls them abusive seriously yeah and And again yes i'm not i'm not trying to start you know conspiracy about no childhood abuse or whatever i'm just saying that we don't know yeah what this man has been through so you know if we keep coming up on weird quirks and strange things about paul like he's probably not the way that he is to annoy people you know what i mean yeah like he he's the way that he is because you same as everybody else you know the same he, as everyone else. <laughs> he's, exactly. a, he's a product of the way he mm-hmm. was born and mm-hmm. how he was raised and the things that have happened to him and yeah whatever all that stuff so yeah and if he's being an asshole then sure give him the business i'm not saying don't <laughs> <laughs> but if he's just being weird and full of you know all of his phobias and quirks and things like that that he yes. can't express and he's like fumbling yeah and has compulsions and obsessions yes. and fixations yeah and limitations there's a reason for that he is the way that he is for a reason and it all yeah. just makes him the artist he is Poe was on fresh air last week and <laughs> towards the end of the program like the very, you know the very last bit Terry Gross asked him, are any of the fears and insecurities from your youth still with you? I mean, I think there are two answers to that. It's like, no, or all of them. (laughs) Explain, (laughs) please. I'm not quite sure which way to go. You know, she laughs and then she tries to like gently press him for a real answer. She's like, that's hilarious. Okay, so tell me about that. And he right. and he totally deflects and she's like, okay, yeah. that's hilarious, Mr. McCarty. But going back to <laughs> my fucking question. And and yeah, she did the that best. She almost job. answered. It was it was a good answer because it was like funny and candid mm-hmm. and, and you relatable. Could, yes, yes, exactly. And you could tell that like he felt good saying, you know, something mm-hmm. real for once. Yep. <laughs> yep. But then when she circled back to get just a little bit more out of him, like he just uh-huh. shut down. Yep. There are more things in heaven than earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy. And uh, that's true. But tell me about both of those directions of like all of those insecurities staying with you. And well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Terry. He was yeah. not about to. He, was he wasn't not about to open up. <laughs> no. Which is too bad. He does every once in a while. Uh, he was like, I got to experience the 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 simulated feeling like I might open up for two seconds. And that was, <laughs> that enough. was enough. <laughs> like that'll last me 
five years. It <laughs> <laughs> was a close one. I really <laughs> stared death in the face that time. <laughs> then he keeps going back to Howard Stern. I know. He gets good stuff out of him. Howard does a pretty good job. He does. He asks like three softballs in a row and then he'll throw a curveball mm-hmm. and then he'll quickly get off it as soon as somebody goes no i don't know no no he'll throw up another softball mm-hmm. distract him they'll hit the other softball you know like, yeah but he's just throwing mm-hmm. pitches the entire time yeah and he never sounds overly invested right which i think's help probably helps the other person relax yeah 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 no he, he does a good job in that way so you know paul was on today Oh, he was? Yeah, he did a stern appearance today. No way. He said the last time we saw each other, we were talking about baking bread. <laughs> Somebody wrote, when was last time they spoke important questions? Like there's no <laughs> there's no date here. There's no context. Nope. There's nothing. Mm-mm. He gives intimate details about the bread, but not <laughs> about anything else. What, like whether it was wheat, whole wheat, or like the stove he was the type of yeah. oven he was cooking it in. Oh, you know, I'm what? not kidding. I actually love that. <laughs> That's great. Oh my gosh. It's just the sleight of hand of that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what was your last conversation with your soon to be tragically slaughtered on the street, famous soulmate buddy friend? Let me tell you about the stove I had in 1980. Speaking of Howard Stern, uh, Stern is the only person, I think, who has directly spoken to Paul about the possibility of John being in love with him. He's the only one as far as I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Paul didn't react badly when it was brought up. Nope. Um, But when Howard quickly took it to the Machiavellian mustache twirling place and he immediately lost him. Yeah, which was nowhere to be seen in the original quote from Yoko. I think Howard goes on about, you had so much power over him that you were able to get him to do anything you wanted. And it's like, that was not in, I don't know. I know. Fan fiction. Well, that's the weird (laughs) place is that. Yes. I think it's like he put the he put the gushy stuff out there and yeah, Paul, and Paul was, was, was like, fine oh, with that. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then he like backpedals and he takes it yes. into like a more prison kind of situation. You know, like <laughs> I don't mean you loved power, him. That's right. Yeah. Manipulate him. And Paul's like, okay, stop. Here's what the book claimed. Your sexuality was so powerful over him. He was so enamored of you, so attracted to you almost. Wow. That you could have your way with him, not sexually. Did you feel a power but in business over him? that no. you had a that that he was sort of at your mercy because he was so in love with you? That was the theory in the book. Well, you know, I mean, I I like that theory. Yeah, you <laughs> wish that could have been true. No, man. No, not to have sex, but to be able to control him more because it would have been a little bit easier. No, business-wise. But, but Howard, listen, man, yeah. you can make up theories about anything. Yeah, I think this is instructive to anyone who has any lingering doubt about why Paul isn't eager to talk about his relationship with John beyond a few prepared, crowd tested, <laughs> kid tested, mother approved anecdotes. <laughs> Paul is pretty receptive toward discussion of the love between them when it's framed as such, but he obviously 
bristles and objects to the idea that you sexually manipulated him to gain power in the band idea. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's not into that. Yeah, for all kinds of reasons, I'm sure. Of course. <laughs> That's not the way to get him to open up. No, no. A few questions that I have trying to kind of um, gauge what Paul might be thinking and feeling during the pizza and fairy tales era. Do you think there's any chance that Paul would have ever had any idea that John was filling journals with thoughts about him? It's hard to say. My instinct is no. Well, I would say no. Like in terms of the actual fact that he was doing that, I would say no. There's no way that he would know that because Paul doesn't have a mole inside the Dakota. (laughs) Like who would would (laughs) tell him? Do you think that Paul ever knew that John was ever that level of obsessive? Yes, that's possible. Okay. I I don't think he would know that he's literally writing filling journals. Sure. However, told him, which seems unlikely. Why would he? Yeah. Right. However, if you mean like in a general sense, would Paul have an inkling that, you know, John was obsessive and paranoid about him? Mm -hmm. Um, Then, yeah, I think he definitely could um it's also very possible that john because if they're not talking that much Uh in that period let's say 77 through 79 um if they only talk like once you know briefly every few months then Mm -hmm. certainly john could mask his obsession totally yeah yeah and he could put on a fairly convincing bland mm-hmm. what do you want you know blase right yeah yeah i mean yeah. here's here's the thing so he said to hunter davies in 1982 for 10 years he picked my songs apart we had great screaming matches over it mm, so that, that's got to be the 70s right that's how i take it yeah yeah which is pretty amazing that they were having knockdown drag out arguments in the 70s about john being paranoid about paul's songs specifically we know that john's they paranoid. fighting about i don't know but like we we know that uh that john is is paranoid about ram mm-hmm. if it extends beyond that to to other things that's that's kind of wild it is yeah yeah does it does john still think paul is still making swipes at him secretly in his songs or would it be more like, um, I know that that nice loving song you wrote was to me, admit it, kind of thing. <laughs> Don't pretend like my love is for Linda. I know it's for me. <laughs> Maybe it's not about that. Maybe it's just John saying, oh, yeah. Oh, you got a number one. Too bad. It fucking sucks. And Paul's like, you know what? Fuck off. When was yeah, the last time you be, had a number one? Like, it could just be that. That's true. Picked apart could just mean criticized. Yeah. Oh, I heard your song on the radio. You should have done X, Y, and Z instead yes, of whatever. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I Paul didn't ask your look. fucking opinion. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody's got to tell you the truth. Yeah. Like, he could have just been critical, which is, yeah. is that's yeah. definitely believable because that's always it how is. he is. Yeah. He's yeah. hypercritical of, of Paul publicly and in his journals. Yep. Yeah, and you do kind of wonder why would Paul come back for that? 
yeah you do but but people do he definitely did say at some point like john got sweeter again Mm -hmm. yeah when he was in new york with the baby so maybe he means 1980 i don't know what about paul inviting john to new orleans as we said the cover story was oh we'll just hang out it'll be fun but Paul was hoping it would turn into more, right? Don't you think that they would collaborate? Sure. Uh, I think he would be happy just to have the hanging out. Sure. Like he'd accept it. I don't think he'd be like, oh, fuck you. Why did I bother? You know, I think he'd be like, okay, great. Not at all. That's, yeah. We can build on that. And mm-hmm. All right. This is from May's book. This is John talking about New Orleans. I'd really like to go, John said to me after the call. I've never been to New Orleans and it's Mardi Gras season and I'd love to see it. And it will be fun to watch Paul record, which is super, super sweet. So soft. Yeah. Yes. Fun to watch Paul record like in the good old days. That's right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Like there's a a story in, in Sergeant Pepper era. Or a couple of stories, actually, in Sergeant Pepper era, where John would just go, just go into the studio and watch if he wasn't had nothing to do. Yeah, he was supportive. Yeah, and adoring. Yeah, like, there's no way to make that not an act well, of adoration. Well, and and Paul knows, like it's a it's a <laughs> it's a thing. Of course, he does. Yeah. Yeah, because he jabs John a little bit with it when he's asked about how do you sleep in 1971. But he already knows it. It's not the only other thing, because he's sat here in this very room, and he's watched me do takes, and he's dug it, and he knows it, you know? And he knows he it. He knows it, yep. <laughs> and he knows that I know it. Yes, exactly. Right. Which I don't, I mean, that's not really a dig. That's just a reality check. <laughs> exactly. You exactly. know, like... Don't sit there and pretend like you were dying to get away from me for the last five years. That's right. Yeah. And you couldn't stand everything you did. Yeah. So hurtful. I know. But it's probably exactly because of that dynamic that John felt he had to go so hard in the other direction. Like that's very, that's very vulnerable information. It's not like Paul is the only one who knew it. Like there are other people in the studio probably like this is, huh. They called Paul John's princess. That's right. Who? Some shady ass Apple employees. Well, I want to know how widespread it was. I think it was first reported in Peter Brown's book. And then when Philip Norman reported it in his book, he says Yoko gathered that John had contemplated an affair with Paul. And then he adds, nor apparently was Yoko the only one to have picked up on this around Apple in her hearing, Paul would sometimes be called John's princess. It could be meant in a derogatory way, or it could just be mm-hmm. in a but sort of harmless relationship. Way. Was like, yeah, yeah, exactly. 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 Is the call coming from inside the house or not? Were they just like, who is this? <laughs> like oh that's john's new thing mm, how does miss princess feel about it you know like, oh. wh- what shady shit were they saying yeah yeah mm. what 
is the possible context where Yoko overhears I, that? That's exactly. I want details. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm sure Paul loved that. If Paul is John's princess, what does that make John? The prince. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that does imply that that John was treating him nice. Yeah. That is something that I try to remember because sometimes it does feel like, Paul, why are you going back for more here? Why didn't you cut him off? You know, like it sometimes yeah. Paul doesn't look good in the scenario. I know. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, I try to remember that like everybody in John's life says that he had a really, really super sweet, soft, loving and vulnerable side. Yep. I think there's a big part of Paul that likes that dynamic. That is drawn to the crazy. I mean, a lot of people are attracted to that. It's exciting, you know? Absolutely. And it's also like a pretty intense way to be loved, too. So that can be Mm -hmm. intoxicating. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And there's nothing, you know, in Paul's life and history to suggest he doesn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) True. It's hard to judge from the outside because we really don't know what it was like on the inside. Yeah. So, you know, yes, we read the lyrics book and sometimes think, why do you sound so crazy, Paul? <laughs> like, why does everything you say about John sound so weird? Why are you so weird? Yes. But at the end of the day, this guy fucked him up really, really bad. Yep. It is just a relationship that fucked his shit up forever forever yeah so so whoever amongst us (laughs) has never been messed up by an intense relationship then you know throw the first fucking stone but yeah well and like there's no playbook for that relationship well and he's trapped in it i mean he can't get away from it anyway no like that's he, there's no room for him to nope. get away from it in a healthy manner and sort of nope. move past it and whatever. It's it's like they built this cage for themselves, mm-hmm. and yep. they were like, "It's fine because we will live in it forever, and that's we will right. love each other forever, and we will never break up." So who that's cares? Right. So of course they both went a little, you know, nuts. Yep. Uh, and then John was killed, and there's that's just not something that can be dealt with well even without all the weird pressures other pressures on the relationship and on them personally and everything that's a lot yeah for someone to 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 process to carry around to live with and to be graceful about like it's a it's so much to ask big ask yeah it it really is and i think everyone can agree that if the roles were reversed and Paul had been violently murdered in 1980 that John Lennon probably wouldn't have handled it perfectly, (laughs) nor would we expect him to. No. Do we really think that he would be perfectly, you know, cool and eloquent and totally normal? (laughs) Yeah. And gracious 24 seven. No. Yeah. I know you cut Paul lots of slack and so do I. And I actually like, I, I do, especially, um, since I actually lost my 
best friend person soulmate a couple years ago. Um, I don't know if I should get this personal, but fuck it, I'm doing it. And like, if I had gone through what Paul went through around that, like I had zero of the, you know, terrible falling out, public, mm-hmm. whatever, yeah. violent murder. Like there was, there was none of that. Um, but no, if I'd gone through what Paul went through around that, like I'd be in an institution, best case scenario. So I, I have, I have infinite sympathy for however weird Paul needs to act to get him, keep himself going. If you haven't had that happen, you just really can't. Don't judge. Don't judge. That relationship was never normal, was probably never completely healthy. And then it got cut off in like the most horrible way imaginable. So of course he's not, of course he's not processing great. He didn't even process his mother's death until Linda died. And that's, I mean, that's another point. Yeah. He lost John and then he, his soulmate, and then he had to go through it all again, losing Linda, losing Linda to the same illness that killed his mother. Yeah. And then three years later, George died. If Paul is weird about all of those beloved and tragically dead people, (laughs) I I don't want to pull rank or be weird or anything like that. But if you haven't gone through that, you, you don't understand. So what if he talks about him too much sometimes or if he yeah. tells the same stories or like let him tell the story. Yeah. So we know that Paul called and sweet talked John into, you know, actually to signing the divorce papers. But do we have any any accounts or evidence at all about what he said specifically or how he thought about it afterward did he i don't think so it sounds like paul was just pragmatic about it all and he was like it's fine i'll stay you know we'll stay until it gets done yeah this is not out of character i mean i think paul is second only to yoko in terms of handling john Hmm. i almost wonder if paul like kind of saw it coming so here's my here's my rationale getting those papers signed has been the preeminent thrust of his yeah. life for yeah. years That's true. years he's been working and sweating and bleeding to make that happen yeah so if if john not doing it at the last minute had caught him unawares i feel like we would have gone nuclear or at least gotten as angry as george did for sure yeah that that absolutely makes sense so the fact that he didn't kind of tells me that it was not surprising Right, 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 right. He's like, okay, what's what's going on? And he just listens to what John says and he's like, okay, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll work it out. We'll fix it. Don't worry. Yeah. Paul's reaction in that situation was definitely the right one. Yeah. And then Yoko yeah. does a version of the same thing. She's like, okay, give him give him an out to so that he That's can right. fall. Like he just yeah. needs like they both get it immediately. He just needs a little bit of space. A little handling. Yep. Yeah. Let's talk about Sean and and Paul for a little bit. So as a reminder, Paul told Hunter Davies that John was so jealous that he wouldn't let Paul touch Sean. When they all met up at some point, Sean was a baby and John wouldn't let Paul touch him or hold him. And Paul's interpretation was that that was because of jealousy. Obviously, he's distraught. Uh, And reading the words on the page, it just seems like he's saying, man, isn't that crazy? That's so crazy. What was wrong with that guy? But I think we have to consider Paul's kind of special relationship 
with fatherhood and with children and how he watched John fathering Julian and had all kinds of feelings about that for the rest of his life. So factoring all that in, I think it, that must have been really painful for him. Well, you know what? It, it kind of it kind of reminds me of that, uh, that Martha, my dear story. Mm-hmm. John's feeling closer to Paul, watching Paul with the puppy. Right. You know, Paul would feel closer to John, seeing him with Sean and getting in on that cuddle fest, too. It's, just, it's right. kind of a similar idea. I don't know. You know, these two are so weird about intimacy and like so possessive about intimacy with each other. And I don't yeah. know. I feel like because of Paul's relationship to fatherhood, it would have been really painful f- for John to not trust him that way well it's a it's just a lot of bad feeling if he's like no you don't get to touch him then it sort of makes paul feel like like john considers paul the source of that bad feeling Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is just hurtful well it's the opposite of what paul would ever want to be to john exactly what song does paul always cite as his favorite solo john song Beautiful boy. Yep. So the last song we'd like to discuss is actually one of John's. We're going to point our listeners back to the beginning of episode three. Tennessee is the song that John wrote when he decided to go down to New Orleans with Paul at the beginning of 1975. This was when they were close and on the brink of reuniting. As you'll recall from episode three, the plan, however, fell apart at the last moment under mysterious circumstances. And then in 1979, John abandoned the lyrics to Tennessee and used the same melody to create a new song called Howling at the Moon. This is the same thing that he did with Child of Nature, which began as a hopeful, gentle song written on the road to Rishikesh. And then later was turned into Jealous Guy, which is a song of regret and a very personal reflection on the past. We definitely believe that music is where John expressed his true feelings, Mm -hmm. at least the ones that do express emotions. And and this is why we think it's often useful to take a look at what he conveys in his most heartfelt songs. The phrase howling at the moon, of course, refers to the futility of longing for something that one can never have. So the lyrics go, memory, memory, what you do to me. Today is all I need to know. Why do you have to haunt me when I thought I let you go? Ah, I hear your voices whispering through the cold and lonely hall. Memory, memory, release me from your spell. Why do you have to haunt me when I thought I let you go? Sometimes I think the daylight has come too soon. Praying is something much better than howling at the moon. It's interesting, memory, memory, release me from your spell. Sounds like mirror, mirror on the wall. You know, Mm. it's like a fairy tale, fairy tale. And John is kind of casting himself in the role of the wolf. Not in like the villainous sense i think but just the wild and animalistic 
connotation. Something that's out of control is inside him and can't help but just howl wordlessly, uselessly at the moon. An animal howling versus like a rational, the rational human verbs of praying, Mm -hmm. wishing, hoping. Those are actions he aspires to and he understands would be better than the howling but maybe he can't quite get over that helpless animal side enough to achieve and then it's interesting how it goes from i thought i let you go i thought i let you go and then it turns to you went away i let you go versus you left me i always take that line as you went away and i thought i was okay with it like i thought i let you go not because it was my choice or because i wanted to but because i knew that i had to Mm -hmm. i thought i got over it yeah yeah Yeah, you can definitely see it that way too but it's interesting because he says it the same way twice and then the third time he phrases it differently and in literature and in poetry when you have a single concept that is expressed two different ways then the differences they have to be significant you know and they can there can be various interpretations i thought i let you go could definitely mean like i got over it when you left but there's still the possibility of letting go being a more active Whereas you went away feels more like being abandoned and it does. And if nothing else, it doesn't include the, I let it go. It's just, you went away. He doesn't say, and I got over it. He just leaves it at you went away. Well, he might not know. For sure. He might not know what the real situation was. Oh yeah. I think that is particularly brilliant about this song actually is that it it encapsulates that wounded confusion that is so prevalent with john and paul like how they both feel hurt and abandoned by the other and that is one of actually that's one of the things that makes it so difficult to figure out exactly what happened between them yeah yeah i don't think that they ever really fully saw the other's perspective on that yeah and so from the outside it's very confusing because yes you kind of have to try to figure out a scenario where they both feel abandoned by the other right yeah and they both feel rejected by the other yeah so like for instance in now and then he also says i don't want to lose you but if you have to go away i can't stop you like he's helpless to stop this person from leaving, even though it's not really what he wants. And then he sings, mm-hmm. and if you go away, I know you'll never stay, indicating that it's ultimately hopeless because this person, even when in John's life, will never stay. Oh, well, however, if you look at it as a full sentence, if you go away, I know you'll never stay could mean I know you'll never stay away so maybe again we have that sort of tension of two different possible meanings maybe that's a moment you know that's a spark of hope in an otherwise sad song or maybe it's just 
exhausting, this back and forth. You know, you won't leave and you won't stay. Mm. So thematically, I always see those songs as connected because I know you'll never stay is a similar concept to Howling at the Moon. Both are situations that John seems to believe deep down are hopeless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then now again, he sings, if we must start again, which obviously suggests a relationship with a past, which is similar to the haunting and memories from (laughs) Howling at the Moon. Right. Very, very focused, both of these lyrics on the past. Yes, the past that can never be attained yeah yeah i i can't even imagine how devastating it would be to have somebody like this in your life who you're hurting about basically and then having to hear that person's literal voice singing at random times when you're not not expecting it singing love songs no less and sometimes singing with you. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's both of you singing together. Sometimes it's both oh, of you singing true. love songs that you wrote together. Like that, that's, ins- <laughs> that's crazy. Like what kind of a funhouse madness is that? Yeah, that's, that is a weird world to inhabit. I mean, you go to the newsstand and sometimes you look over and there's a picture of you with that guy. Yeah. And you look so much happier back then. I mean, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's rough. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Talk about being haunted. How can he get over it? I don't think he can. And if Paul didn't feel similarly haunted by John in the 1970s, I'm sure he did starting in 1981. So unfortunately, there's there's no way to avoid the fact that the story ends in tragedy. I wish we could give you a different ending, but sadly, we cannot. Yeah, there's just no way around it. However, the good news is that in 1980, in the final year of John's life, John and Paul do reconnect. Details are hazy. And Paul never talks about it and presumably never will. But according to Jack Douglas and Linda via Carl Perkins, and arguably Yoko as well, Mm -hmm. there were plans in progress for Lennon-McCartney to write and record together in 1981. That's right. And we do believe that they saw each other in person in 1980. Yeah. And all things considered... John's untreated mental illness, the incredible pressure both men live under, and the intensity of their feelings, the relationship ending on any kind of upswing, however tentative, is frankly a best case scenario. Mm. Paul has worked hard to take every bit of comfort he can from that, and good for him. That's right. As far as we know, they never got the chance to write together again. But as we discussed in episode four, 
Paul was able to posthumously collaborate with John on Free as a Bird. And whether or not we ever get to hear it, (laughs) (laughs) he will finish now and then as well. He might be doing it right now, people. I hope he does it and enjoys it, whether or not we get to hear it. Yes. I wish he would finish all of John's unfinished demos, actually. I mean... Why not? Why not? Yeah. Daphne, it's been great doing this series with you. Oh, Phoebe. (laughs) Pleasure has been all mine. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. Yes, (laughs) you're welcome. And thank you for having me. It's it's been great. It's been hard. It's been fun. It's been depressing. (laughs) I feel like I've been hit by a truck, but in a good way. Yes, a good truck. There's one last thing I'd like to discuss. Which is that sometimes I feel that it's difficult for Paul to take ownership of his relationship with John. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, But first, uh, we're going to share a quote from Paul to Rolling Stone magazine in 1987. Now, just for context, uh, the mid-80s is a time when Paul is starting to open up a little bit about their relationship. In 1985, he gave that interview to German TV that we discussed in episode four about being almost like a girlfriend to John. And also in 1985, he told Playgirl magazine that John said he wrote Jealous Guy for Paul. Definitely check out our episode on Jealous Guy if you haven't yet. No, it's really good. You you should all listen to it. And 1986 is the famous interview with Chris Salowitz, where Paul is very candid about a lot of things. So here's the quote from 1987. It's just like divorce. It's that you were so close and so in love that if anyone decides to start talking dirty, great, then Pandora's box is open. That's what happened with us. In the end, it was like, oh, you want to know the truth about him? Right, I'll tell you. Obviously, I go over this ground in my mind. I was one of the biggest friends in John's life, one of the closest people to him. I can't claim to be the closest, although it's possible. It's contentious, but I wouldn't, I don't need that credit. But I was certainly among the three or four people who were closest to him in his life, I would have thought. And obviously, it was very hurtful. Okay. So, you know, besides the fact that Paul is essentially saying that the intensity of their breakup was commensurate with the intensity of their love for each other, Mm. that's a big statement there. But the even bigger statement that gets pretty much overlooked is, I can't claim to be the closest, although it's possible. So Paul is saying it's possible I was the closest person to John. Right. Ever. Yeah. Closer than Yoko. That's, that's the contentiousness he's referencing there. Right. I definitely do feel like Paul defers to Yoko as John's wife, um, which he should. Which he should. Yeah. For a number of reasons, Um, you know, because he believes that that is, correct and that is the right thing to do 
But I also think a big part of him wants to assert his claim as John's chosen partner for a very long, very important, formative, largely productive and happy part of John's life, which he also has every right to do. Yes. However, I think both the public and Paul himself struggles with exactly what his role is, so to speak, in John's life. Mm. In the past, I think this has partly been, you know, because of Paul's age and the world he and John grew up in and sort of the limitations about how we talk about same-sex relationships. Mm -hmm. And Paul personally has a tendency to think himself into vicious circles. And part of that is his perception of how he's going to be reacted to. He doesn't know how much space he's allowed Mm. to take up in John's life by outside people. Right. And when he feels himself being marginalized, he pushes back. Yes. It's not just about bragging rights about who wrote what song and who was more innovative and all, and all of that course. kind of stuff it there's also it's personal very deeply yes i think people who are concerned with the first issue you know competition and jealousy and the clashing the of egos the right. rivalry yeah. Yeah. yeah which which is important and you know should be a major concern but i think people who are too focused on that sort of ignore the more personal angle to it. And it's important to remember that these are human beings and we're talking about a personal relationship that was just as important as the creative and competitive aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, the bigger issue here is the sort of hard to define quality of their relationship. In other words, what were they? Yeah. What were they after all? I feel like in this day and age, at least, we are mostly (laughs) respectful of same-sex partners as long as they fit into a palatable, monogamous, you know, easily understood mold. Mm -hmm. But what if two people shared a life together, lived together, grew up together, made art together? Built a kingdom, an empire together. Right. Changed the face of pop culture and loved each other above everyone else. But if they weren't lovers in the traditional physical sense. Does that mean that they weren't a valid couple? Yeah. And I think this is something John struggled with for the rest of his life. Was what we had real? Paul said in 1997 at St. Peter's Church in Liverpool, commemorating the time and place where he and John first officially met, we wrote our first songs together, we grew up together, and we lived our lives together. And when we'd do it together, something special would happen. There'd be that little magic spark. I'm very proud of what we did, and I'm very glad that I did it with John. So Paul McCartney certainly doesn't need my validation. (laughs) And I don't assume that he's listening anyway, but, um, (laughs) but I just hope that he knows and believes 
And here's someone he trusts and respects. Tell him that, yes, you were in a valid, profound, long-term relationship with John Lennon. People may want what you had, but they can't have it. And they can't take it away from you either. And your version of events deserves equal weight in the story. Your words and your experiences are real and valid. And we believe you. I feel like when we want something from him, we treat Paul like John's widower, right? We treat Paul like John's husband. Mm-hmm. When The Lives of John Lennon by Albert Goldman came out, you know, who was there to defend John? Besides Yoko, it was Paul. Yeah. The thing is that, you know, we don't expect or demand widows or widowers to reveal intimate details about their relationship with the deceased. We don't demand proof of their sexual intimacy. As bad as Yoko has been treated over the years, we we wouldn't do this to her. And I know that Yoko and Paul are not exactly the same. I get the point, if you're gonna make the point like, well, she was his actual wife, not his metaphorical husband. I take that point, but it also, you know, counterpoint, there was no such thing as husbands in the 60s. That wasn't an option. And, you know, if two people say they're married enough times, they're married even if they don't have the legal option of getting married. Right. Or if their relationship doesn't include all of the typical trappings of a typical marriage, that doesn't matter. They identified as married. That is the story they wrote for themselves and the story they told to us. So if John called Paul his spouse a million times, shouldn't we treat Paul like that? Yes. We should believe them. Mm-hmm.